alone lying, thinking last night how to find my soul a home where water is not thirsty and bread loaf is not stone. I came up with one thing, and I don't believe I'm wrong, that nobody but nobody can podcast out here alone. Alone, all alone, nobody but nobody can podcast out here alone. There are some millionaires with money they can't use. Their wives run around like banshees. Their children sing the blues. They've got expensive doctors to cure their hearts of stone. But nobody, no nobody, can podcast out here alone. Now if you listen closely, I'll tell you what I know. Storm clouds are gathering. The wind is going to blow. The race of man is suffering. And I can hear the moan. Because nobody, but nobody, can podcast out here alone. All alone, nobody, but nobody, can podcast out here alone. I just feel like we're all in this kind of mellow mood now. We're just like, all right, yeah, all right. That's that's the effect of of Maya. I I posted my virtual background for today is Maya Angelou teaching the word M with Elmo. Sure. And I just have such a Pavlovian response to her because of how much she was on Sesame Street in the early 90s, where like any celebrity who appeared on Sesame Street that much, I still find relaxing when they pop up in things I watch as an adult. That makes total sense. Right? She's a very early 90s figure. Obviously, a, yeah. a, a, you know, existed for far longer than that as a major figure. But, you know, I, you know, I think of the inauguration of Bill Clinton. I think right. of this movie. I think, of, you know, like, yeah, Sesame the, Street. Sure. The 90s know. were sort of when she got elevated to, like, national treasure. A book right, of secrets. Right. You know, when you she was. That. No, but she was. I feel like at that point, it's like, OK, you've been you've been an important cultural figure for this long. We're now treating you like. Uh, a, a, a pillar of our very society. Uh, it is just funny that this is like her first movie appearance in 20 years. Uh, sure. I guess I hadn't thought about that. Like on screen appearance. Yeah. 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 But she had yeah. done like she does movies after this. She had done stuff in the 70s. But this is like a couple things. A big Not, deal. I mean, she's in Roots. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. uh, for her to be in this and also to write the poems in this. It is such a flex for a a filmmaker under the age of 25 for a second movie going like, oh yeah, and by the way, Maya Angelou wrote additional material for me. I just think it speaks to just how uh, unique his position was going into his second movie, which is a thing I want to talk about a little bit on this episode of Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. David, I'm David. Wow. I tried to get in so quickly, I forgot to say I'm. Yeah. Uh-huh, because people have been clowning on you. They've been clowning on you for being slow on the uptake saying and i'm david and so instead this time you were so overeager that you didn't even throw in the and i'm you just went david <laughs> i'm really losing it that's clearly i'm just like uh, david david i'm david well i don't understand why frankly you have no excuse i find your behavior uh <laughs> abhorrent. uh this is a podcast about filmographies directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want and sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby and this is a mini series on the films of John Singleton. This is his second film, Poetic Justice. This miniseries is called Pods in the Cast. And joining us again for the third time from the Bad Romance podcast, film critic, comedian, Jordan Searles. Jordan, thank you so much for being back. Happy to be back. Uh, this is why you, you called that you wanted this one. A while ago, I gave you like a, a list of a couple miniseries ahead 
And the two you spark to were a new leaf and poetic justice. Yes, that's right. You were you were you were deciding between those two. Yes. New leaf great. I mean, I assume you're a fan. Yeah, I love a new leaf. Yeah, it's interesting that I chose this movie because I I I don't love it. This is a more flawed movie. Yes, yeah. right. Than the new leaf. Yeah, I like this movie, but it's you know, it is it is no unambiguous classic. First of all, I like this movie a lot. I'm a big fan of this movie. I had never seen it before. Wait, you had never seen it before? I had never. Not only had I never seen it before, I had a completely incorrect perception of what this movie was. Oh, why did you did you think of it like? Like in relation to the Drake song, what was going on? <laughs> Do you think it was like more about poetry? Like like she was going to go to like a poetry competition or something? I, for some reason, up until when I put this movie on yesterday, thought this was a movie about a poetry teacher. I thought this was a movie about a poetry class. Were you sort of merging this and higher learning his like the, his two adjacent movies where it's like, yeah, is it said at school? Like, right? I guess I must have. But I but I know that like higher learning is more of like a campus violence movie. Well, I mean, I, I do feel like if you if you look at the poster of Poetic Justice, if it being a, it being a teacher would totally make sense. Her arms are folded. She looks like she's not going to. Yeah, exactly. And the take words any behind her. And also the the 90s were were the the peak. This is the early 90s that the, the the teacher movie is everywhere. There's so many movies about teachers inspiring people. But I think I I knew that Maya Angelou wrote the poems. I knew that it was Tupac and Janet Jackson and I knew the poster and I just extrapolated, I guess, oh I bet this is a classroom movie about her teaching poetry to people. And then I was watching it going like, man, it's taking a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're still in the mail truck. What's going on? Yeah. Well, like 30 minutes in, I looked it up and I was like, oh, I, I just I am watching the wrong movie uh, relative to what I thought. But um, I like this movie a lot. Yeah. Uh, Jordan. So you're you're kind of fascinated with it more than anything. What what is your sort of relationship to this movie and I guess to John Singleton overall that made this one jump out to you first? I mean, I've seen this movie a lot. You know, it's one of those movies that I don't even know if it was. a. It's very hard to tell what was on BET and like what I'm just imagining was on BET because, you know, everybody agrees that Baby Boy was on BET every single day for the duration of our lives. But, like, otherwise, it's very hard to remember, like, what else. Like, I want to say that I watch this a lot on BET, but it also just might have been uh, cable. Uh, Yeah, I've just, I've seen it a lot because, you know, whenever there are, like, Black movies, especially in the 90s that were about any kind of romance, I would watch all of them. Um trying to see which ones I like and which ones I didn't like. And I don't really think I've ever liked this one, but I kept watching it. And I guess I am here to try to figure out why. (laughs) It is also just such a fascinating second movie in that way. I was sort of queuing up where it's like when, when you're a director who is that much of an explosive, like cultural phenomenon movie right out of the gate a lot of people crumble under that pressure of like, now I'm expected to make my, my great follow-up, right? They, they fall into like the Magnificent Ambersons trap Mm -hmm. and somehow their ambitions get too large or they lose control of the movie or whatever it is. And this feels like very strategically him saying like, I'm going to choose to make a movie that is not quote unquote important, you know? 
like I, I'm very much choosing to make a different type of movie and to try to cast off the expectations that every time I'm going to rattle society like Boys in the Hood did. Also, he made a very male movie. Boys in the Hood, obviously, is and, and he's like, I'm going to do a movie with a female protagonist. And yeah, I guess I guess this is not as. I mean, Boys in the Hood is a very confrontational, like, let's let's talk about the issues movie. And I guess this is not that, but this is not like, you know, completely. It is. A, it's a contemporary movie set in contemporary times. That's like, you know, has some issues at the forefront. But yeah, it's a little different. I, I guess this is my bigger point is that, like, I feel like a lot of other filmmakers in his position would have made Higher Learning or Rosewood second. Right. Higher learning does kind of feel like the follow up movie, right? Where he's like, I'm going to I'm going to tackle so many things at once. Right. How do you feel about higher learning, Jordan? I do not like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, I think higher learning is a more is is a, a failure. Is it, you know, like he, a, a huge, huge swings that, that that mostly don't connect. Not to preview my take on higher learning. Yeah. Yeah. Higher learning. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time, but uh yeah, I remember just being like, this is weird. I don't remember exactly why it was weird. It also just feels like a kind of like a like a lesser version of school days, except, you know, in in higher learning, it's like, you know, the racial stuff is like more expansive in terms of all of the conflicts. I don't know. It doesn't really. Uh, I don't know. Now I want to watch it again, but I feel like as soon as I do, I'm going to regret it. <laughs> School Days is funny and it's got all this sort of genre blending. And obviously it's set at a, you know, a historically black college where it's like higher learning is it, it just it's so serious. It's very um, serious. Yeah. And so like that's it's and it, it can't really swerve out of serious because it's got so much to talk about. But look, that's higher learning. I don't know why I'm bringing up so much higher learning on the top of the poetic justice episode. But I agree with you, Griffin, that that feels like movie number two. I was just looking at the reviews of this movie while I was watching it and was very surprised by how mixed they were and how like disappointed critics seem to be. And I, of course, am talking about the primarily white critics who were writing for major outlets in the 90s. And all of them are like, what is this? This is not what we expected from the boys in the hood guy. Like they seem disappointed that he's not making another movie that's like grabbing them by the collar, you know? That's so strange to me because I feel like this is a companion movie to Boys in the Hood in a lot of ways. Yes, but but it's like it's an interesting it's that thing. I mean, you you quoted someone else saying this, David, recently, but the like every director's movie is a response to their last movie in some way. And this is him not falling into the trap of I just need to go bigger. It's like I need to make the complimentary movie, you know, I need to flip to the other side of what I was sort of doing in, a, in Boys in the Hood. But I think that's an interesting artistic choice as opposed to him making the kind of obvious career choice of, you know, like make your your epic now. I also think that was him consciously being like, I'm like 25. Everyone's eyes are on me. I need to set up a template for me to be able to experiment and make different kinds of things without people expecting every time that it's going to be like a primal scream, you know? Look, I mean, it's a very following up boys in the hood is just that's like a curse thing. It's a poison chalice. Like, you know, like you're not going to satisfy any. The hype is very big. You got your Oscar nomination, you know, especially right. These sort of critical 
community is just it's not even they're not going to have their knives out. They're just like you said, they're just going to it's it's the classic second album thing. They will have very high expectations. I think going with an intimate movie that's a romance that's, you know, basically set in one location for about like a huge chunk of the movie, like in a moving location, but is a very smart zag. Yeah. And I think this movie had a long afterlife. Like you're saying today, this I this is definitely a cable movie. Maybe it was I it was all it was this movie was always it's partly also just obviously Janet and Tupac like you know, especially Tupac, like the fact that he's in so few movies, I feel like all his movies kind of play a lot. But like this is just it, 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 the whole legacy of this movie is is a few years after its release, not probably like its opening weekend. Can I just like sort of as a as a comparison point, right? So I, I won't read this full list. I'll just sort of go from like the modern ones most recent. But here are other people who got a, a Best Director Academy Award nomination for their first movie, right? Examining what their second movies were. Okay, because it's like there's a pattern of a couple different things that people fall into. And I think what Singleton did here is strategically, in terms of the long term, the smartest thing someone in his position can do, which is just immediately shake off the expectations of needing to outdo the first movie by saying, I'm not even trying to do that. Right. Yeah. Ben Zeitlin just gets absolutely caught. Right. Like takes eight years, makes a movie that doesn't exist. He sure does. Okay. Tony Gilroy, Michael Clayton sort of tries to do the same thing as this, where he's like, now I'm going to do like a smaller sort of romance, comedy, caper. Mm, Duplicity. Are you gaming me? Right. But I'm like strategically not trying to do the same movie again. And not going for an Oscar or whatever. Right. Which I think is what Singleton's doing here as well. Like making a movie with a lot of integrity, but not trying to make a prestige play in the same kind of way. Bennett Miller Capote, like absolutely overcome with the pressure, takes like seven years to make another film total oscar bait and the oscars are like okay we'll pay attention but they're also like gee eh, but takes so long it turns down so many things ends up signing to a movie that someone else got fired off of you know oh no right he made moneyball before uh, fox catchers fuck i'm sorry moneyball's a great follow-up yeah good job ben and miller yes but but took a while uh uh rob marshall chicago does the obvious thing which is like do memoirs of a geisha next go huge adapt the biggest thing get the biggest people bomb sam mendes american beauty is kind of the weird combination of all of them where he's trying to do like an oscar play and a summer blockbuster with the biggest movie star at the same time and it's a genre exercise Mm -hmm. a hit i feel like was critics were kind of disappointed yeah critics had their knives out at the time right what film is this road to perdition Oh, yeah, that, that, that's a fine movie. It's okay. Yeah, I like that movie. I'm a huge fan of that movie, but it is Griffin wild to think about that. Like Sam Mendes, and he won Best Picture with this he first won. movie, so that's even yeah. more, mm-hmm. you know, uh, big, even bigger hype to deal with. But right, that he's like, yeah, I'm working with Tom Hanks. Okay, buddy, I'm doing a gangster movie. Oh, okay, but it's coming out in the summer. Like that, that's the thing that, that would never happen. No, they would never put that movie out in the summer. Right. Everything about that movie is weird, but it's also just like Hanks, Paul Newman, Spielberg. Everyone was like, absolutely. This is the guy. Right. Uh, Spike Jones just sort of doubles down. Right. Like from being John Malkovich adaptation that actually works. Uh, Costner takes 
fucking seven years and then does the postman. Yeah. You're going to want to deliver mail. Right. I mean, those are like the examples from the 90s and on, you know? Mm-hmm. I just think it's it's like Singleton made this very choice, which is like, I'm going to build a movie around a movie star. Or rather, I'm going to build a movie around a superstar. Yeah, not a movie star. Where I will get the press buzz from making her a movie star. And I saw this like MTV uh, segment, like an MTV news segment on YouTube the other day as I've been watching stuff to prep for this, where they went on to the set of Poetic Justice. And it was wild the way it was framed as, can you believe that Tupac and Janet Jackson are doing a John Singleton movie? Yeah, just like, why would they do that? Or is it crazy that he got them? It, it, that, that it was like, this is big for them as much as it was big for him. I, I can buy that with Tupac. I don't know if I buy that with Janet, though. Like, she was, she was so huge, right? By 93, like, she's been around forever. But that there was an air of legitimacy to it, let's say. Yeah, sure, sure. Right, because she had turned down so many movies at this point in time. Janet Jackson, of course, had been in a lot of sitcoms and TV shows growing up. Hadn't done a movie, period. Was constantly being wooed to try to do like musical films. Didn't do them. And the idea of just like, it was more that the MTV News segment was just like, holy shit, this feels like a cultural moment. You have these three people on the same set. This is going to be major. There just, I think, was an unreasonable amount of expectation put on this movie for a movie that is designed to be a, a pretty intimate, small character study. And Maya Angelou, too. Yeah, Maya Angelou, Tupac, Janet Jackson, you know, John Singleton, like, it, you know, I, I can imagine the expectations for it would be pretty high. I mean, not necessarily in the same way, like it's going to culturally rock the world, but in the sense that this this has got to be something really special. It, it, totally. Yeah. I also think it is having only seen this movie one time 24 hours ago, very much the kind of movie that feels like it would only gain power from watching it on cable over and over again because there's its best qualities are just it's sort of like lived in observational intimacy. It has acts so you can kind of it like a classic cable movie. You can be like, oh, like what part of it? Oh, this is like the beauty shop or this is the they're getting in the mail truck. Like, I don't know. I think that's crucial to a, a rewatchable movie. Yeah, there's I mean, there's like the barbecue scene. And, you know, I I when I was watching it again on yesterday, I was like, oh, I know that the barbecue scene is coming and I know that Maya's is going to be in this scene. And I, the only scene actually in this movie that I always forget is the opening scene. I, I remember everything else, but every single time I turn it on, I'm just like, what, what is Billy Zane doing there every single fucking time? <laughs> I do love opening on Billy Zane and and wait, who is Lori Petty, right? The opening is right, so yeah. fascinating because this feels like him directly addressing the expectations that everyone. Height, right, right, right. It's like to start with the Columbia Pictures logo and Rhapsody in blue playing. Right. And then you have his like once upon a time in South Central L.A. again, but this time with that music. And then you cut indoors to Billy Zane and Lori Petty in this overwrought modern noir film. Yeah, it's it's very funny. Billy's where's Billy Zane? Why is he the guy to be your joke movie star at this point? I want to look this up. It's also odd that's Lori Petty because Lori Petty was such a weird movie star. It's not like she was like conventional Miss Hollywood. I God, I love I love Lori Petty so much. But then again, you know, I, I'm a Tank Girl defender. I love Tank Girl. I think that it's incredible. <laughs> okay, you Ben's getting happy again. 
I mean, Tank Girl is actually kind of another cable movie. I feel like there was maybe just a spell there. I kept catching it on cable. Yeah. But um, yeah, that movie, that like, I mean, I had such a crush on Tank Girl. I was like, I want to date a Tank Girl. (laughs) Tank Girl is is amazing. Like, what is better than a a girl on a tank? Like, it's very hard to think of something better than that. And Tom Waits is in the desert with you, too, in that moment. Come on. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's so good. Um, yeah, but with Billy Zane is so interesting because I've been rewatching, well, I not rewatching, I've been watching a lot of his movies because like people are just like, oh, he's only been in like five movies. That's actually not true. He just did a lot of indie movies and did not do a lot of Hollywood movies. And he's actually really great. And at the same time, I was watching a bunch of Alec Baldwin movies and I decided to make the very explosive take that Billy Zane should have Alec Baldwin's career. And <laughs> oh, I'd be I'd be interested to see it. I mean, I, Billy Zane is so beautiful, especially yeah. back then. Alec Baldwin. And, and, and I look, I, I know he's retired from public life, so I don't want to mock someone who's trying to be private. Yeah, of course, he's retired. He doesn't want to. He's trying to stay out of the spotlight so hard. I mean, like, and Alec Baldwin was very was. We've talked about it, you know, in the eighties. He's he was very handsome, but I don't think of him as as pretty as Billy Zane. Billy Zane, I he think was I'm, a little more sure virile. Yes, Billy Zane is like yeah, beautiful. Around here, this is when he's in Orlando. It's when he's in Tombstone as the like dandy actor. Like he would oh. he would swoop into a movie as like kind of like this sort of flashy kind of exciting handsome guy. And I guess the phantom is it's, it's all supposed to be building to the phantom, which I enjoy. I I, I think the phantom is fun. Uh, I haven't seen it since I was like 12 years old, but, and then, you know, Titanic, I mean, the man's in Titanic. I assume he could just sort of dine out on that forever. He's so good in Titanic, but it, there is something there that, dooms his like a-list possibilities i don't know why yeah well right i mean dead calm is the movie where everyone i guess said like oh this guy's supposed to be a movie star right that's the one yes that's amazing in that yeah yeah it's incredible in that yeah i feel like that was the movie where everyone went like oh this is inevitable it's a matter of time then he does like the smaller films like orlando and then you're right it was like by the time you get to Poetic Justice, it's been four years since Dead Calm, and it almost feels like he's been avoiding putting on a superhero costume. You know, he's been avoiding making the Phantom. He is good in the Phantom. Slam evil. Slam evil. <laughs> you know the you know the story about Phantom, right? Have I said this before on the podcast? Yeah, I think you have. Is it that the writer wrote it as a sort of satirical movie? Joe Dante was supposed to make it and he wrote it as a satire and they fired him and he still retained a producer credit, but he wasn't involved day to day. And he went to the premiere and was like, oh, no, they didn't rewrite the script, but they didn't get that it was a comedy. They just shot it all straight. Yeah, right. They played it. He was just sitting there going like that was a joke. That that (laughs) line is structured like a joke. What are you doing? Billy Zane should have Alec Baldwin's career. So I'm just trying to think of like. I, I you know what? I, I had a full argument for this at the time. And I feel like in the middle of the night, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to remember what the exact argument was. I'm not. I like I, I like, like Alec Baldwin's early career, but I still am just intrigued by like Billy Zane. Like we're making him Jack Ryan. 
Like, obviously, he'd be good in, like, Miami Blues. Mm. He'd probably be fun in Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Yeah. Yes. Uh, like, I'm trying to think of those, like, early. Uh, and then, of course, like, it's funny because, like, Alec Baldwin does The Shadow, which is his The Phantom. They both did briefly go like, oh, OK, uh, 30s newsreel energy. That's what we should do. Right. I will. I think it's just because they both have this, like classic energy but it's not like george clooney kind of a-list thing it's kind of this other it kind of this other kind of weirder territory and somehow alec baldwin was able to parlay that into a career with uh an appeal that i personally don't understand but <laughs> well i mean once when again he's, he's retired from public life we shouldn't talk about him too much but david what are you gonna say well, when Zane is in Titanic, you're like, oh, my God, like this guy is the most dialed in to the, you know, old fashioned, like, you know, vaudevillian thing. You know, everyone in that movie is on a different energy, which is one reason that movie, I think, works. But it is crazy. Yeah. Like some people like he's doing like he's so fucking funny. But people Titanic. clowned on him at the time. I just remember people clowning on that performance, because, but but the, not recognizing how canny it is that he gets what movie he's in more than anyone else. Everything in Titanic was clowned upon, worshipped, you know, took, taken apart, put back together. I mean, that movie was, but yes, you're right. I mean, he, if you think that movie is silly and over the top, you're going to point to he, Billy he's Zane. He's the embodiment of it, yes. Right, yeah. But I mean, I think that all rules. I put the coat on her when Just, he says that. Oh, That's my yeah, favorite part. Yeah. Uh, looking at things he did right after Titanic, it feels like another moment where he like deliberately avoided becoming like the Hollywood villain du jour, you know, where he, he probably turned down a lot of easy pathways. And then Zoolander, which for me is a feather in his cap. That Listen he's like Billy Zane. Right. That he's not precious enough about his image. Maybe kind of fucked him in a way. Well, because it makes it seem like he's retired. Right. It's like he's what is he just chilling now doing cameos? It, I don't it know. It makes They're, him yeah. seem like Richard Grieco in Night at the Roxbury. That's the problem. What he should have done probably at that point, and I forgot, of course, he's on Twin Peaks as well. Shout out to uh, John Justin Wheeler. But oh, yeah. um, I always forget that. Yeah, yeah. Right. I do too. And he's in the first two Back to the Future movies, of course. Well, as yeah. Match, yeah. he's one of the one of the right, one of the bullies. But he probably should have done a TV show and he didn't. Um, because TV, I guess, in the late 90s is still, you know, it's, it's not as easy to sort of hop over. And I, maybe that he did a lot of TV movies. But like, why didn't he have some show where he's like a hot lawyer? That just kind of feels easy. I want to say two things before we move out of our 10 minute Billy Zane corner segment on our Poetic Justice episode. Yeah, let's get out of Zane, who's in this movie for one minute four shots <laughs> like yeah. maybe two right yeah. uh just two quick things about zane uh david i know both you and i rewatched all of community recently he's got that one episode appearance on community where he's unbelievable in yeah. the last season yeah. where he is so fucking funny that makes you wonder why he hasn't had a alec baldwin style comedic resurgence because it feels like that guy is ready to just show up with a big bushy beard and be a bizarre comedic figure He's the Honda guy, if yes. people don't remember. He is so fucking good in that episode. Uh, secondly, uh, if anyone did not listen to our episode, of course, on Don John, uh, which was a couple episodes before this, Sean Clements shares an amazing story about Billy Zane, which I, also is why I think we're taking to him so strongly now, because we're like in that sphere of is Billy Zane a genius? Did we do wrong by him culturally? Uh, Jordan, I will repeat the story for you off mic. Um, yeah, it's a good okay. story. Uh, 
But and anyway. maybe Billy Zane comes off great in this story. Put yes, it that way. it's a story that that uh, it co-signs your argument that perhaps Billy Zane should not only have been Alec Baldwin, but should have been anointed the president of Hollywood. You you have this fake out movie, and then you go to the uh, drive-in theater. This yeah, this this date with Janet Jackson and Q-Tip. Yes, mm-hmm. which. Uh, I mean, once again, I'm watching this and I think this movie's about a teacher, right? I think this is the tragic back. I know. I just, it was sometime after, I guess like maybe 25 minutes in, I I realized I was wrong. But at this point, I assume this is the tragic backstory and it's going to cut ahead 10 years to her in a classroom on the first day of school or something, right? It's more interesting this being the overly dramatic opening to a movie that isn't really trafficking in the same level of drama. Even compared to like when uh, uh, Tupac finds out that his cousin is dead is handled very differently than this sequence, which is so operatic, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's very quiet. The the later scene, right? This is you know, the close up on the gun and her screaming and the glass breaking. And yes, it, it feels uh, it's sort of out of break. It's not it's not like anything else in the movie in a way. Yeah. But it's also like, here's like everyone is still reeling from the death of Ricky, right? And he's sort of like, I'm going to give you the Ricky death right up at the top. So the entire movie isn't the audience going, when is someone going to get shot? In some way, it feels like maybe that was his thought process. Yeah, that's that's perhaps I am the the Q-tip thing is so interesting because like later when you learn about the rest of her backstory, that her grandma died recently and that her mom and that her mom also died. Her mom committed suicide, right? Yeah, yeah. Committed suicide. It's like she already has so much tragedy. So to also have the Q-tip thing is like, okay, so this woman is surrounded by death. Like, <laughs> right. right. Also, the Q-tip thing doesn't really come up again in the same way that the stuff you're talking about. I mean, I guess it comes up. But like, it's casting this Paul over the movie. I. It's funny also just because, like, Q-Tip's kind of a dick in this scene, and then he gets shot, (laughs) which is weird. And, like, I don't think the movie needs it in terms of, like, the stuff it explores later with her character. Like you said, she's got plenty worth exploring that she lays out there. But maybe you're right, Griff, that it's sort of like him challenging the audience of, like, is this what you expect from me? I don't know. And especially starting with this fake bullshit Hollywood movie, you know, I mean, I just feel like he's at the very beginning trying to address the baggage that everyone's going to come into his second movie with to some degree, you know, and you also have just like the way the sequence is set up with him going to get the food from the concession stand. And then you have that very weird like split diopter shot that that isn't even trying to look like it's the same image. It's sort of like a split screen in terms of composition, but with the split diopter effect between it and the way that's just sort of like just building and building intention, them talking about the guy. Um, it, it just feels like he's, you know, coming to the table saying, I know all eyes are on me right now. And this is what you expect. And I'm going to knock this movie right out at the beginning. Right. First, I'm going to show you the parody of the type of movie I'm not going to make which I also think is sort of a statement of, uh, I was reading, uh, uh, I, I know I'm going on like tangents off of tangents off of tangents here, 
But but Cam Collins' piece when Singleton died was really good. I've been reading a lot of his um, in memoriam. Uh, the pieces written about Singleton after he died, especially because that death was so surprising to people that I feel like it got these really great tributes because people had to suddenly do real digging as opposed to it being someone who they were like, oh, I've already come to terms with the fact that this guy might never make a movie again. He's 86, right? Um, it felt like he was, you know, sort of pulled so uh, arbitrarily and, and early. Um, and Cam Collins said this thing about how so much of John Singleton's identity as a filmmaker is tied to just his very first moment ever, which is the, the Columbia logo at the beginning of Boys in the Hood with the screaming over it, right? And that John Singleton was very aware of the fact that he was not an independent filmmaker, that he was making big Hollywood studio movies, and that he was not trying to be esoteric. He was trying to wield the responsibility of being at the sort of center of the culture in a lot of ways. And this whole opening feels to me like him just kind of wrestling with all of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. But then Q-Tip gets shot, Jan Jackson screams, and we go to a notebook. Her name's Justice, and she writes poetry. She is a poetic justice, one could argue. And he's already mentioned that that's what he loves most about her is her poetry. Oh, high school poetry, man. Were you a high school poet, Ben? I mean, I was mad as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wrote it down. What was your tolerance level in terms of like, what, what kind of schedule were you on? Were you thinking you were going to continue to take it or were you planning to not take it anymore? Wait, what? That's a mad as hell joke. That was a crazy joke, Griffin. It was, it was, I mean, that, talk about a sophomore slump. It might be better that I didn't know what you meant. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Um, I guess, I guess the idea with justice is that She's just got this kind of arrested life, right? Like she's like post this, she's just kind of like sort of trying to figure herself out. That's this is a romance, but that's kind of the major plot of the movie, right? Like she's just kind of still in a bit of a daze. She's got her friends, but she's kind of just kind of like, guarded now. Right. Yeah. Put the yeah. put the shutters up. Right. Right. She lives in her grandmother's house with her cat and she sort of just is like, you know, it, her life is just her job. I was feeling so it's interesting because she, she's supposed to be, you know, like a loner and sad and everything. But I was honestly watching the movie just like, man, I wish I was living in this house. And then she opened oh. the and I love the cat. And then she opens the closet. It's just all these black clothes. And I was just like, yes, girl, same. I was just like this, this whole thing where she's just like supposed to be like bitter. And it's just like, go out there and like meet a man. I was just like, no, like, this is fine. Like, I, I wish that's what I was doing. <laughs> Her job is fun. I just like that the first 20, 20, 30 minutes of this movie are mostly set in the the hair salon. It's mostly people hanging out and chatting. It's just got a good energy. It's funny. Uh, and it's the that it's that's not related to the rest of the movie. We're going to we're Then we're going to go on a trip. But like this is all good. This is all something I just could watch on cable 10 times, which is I do feel like poetic justices ultimate legacy it's it's fun slice of life stuff and it's i'm paraphrasing cam collins again here but it's sort of like the argument that singleton was trying to make so badly at this point in his career which is like the, the, the culture i'm representing is the mainstream 
You know, it is just a mainstream America that Hollywood does not represent. He, he, I think so much of the design of this movie is making something that is just about a couple of characters and a couple of days, you know, and saying like, there's sort of no bigger point behind this. They're individual points and scenes. The statement is the, the intimacy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, the only overarching theme that I got, and I think I'm getting it more as I'm older, is this idea that, you know, um, in this time, you know, the the late 80s and early 90s and, you know, everything after that, there's this thing with, like, the older generation watching the younger generation uh, of Black um, men and women and everyone else just being like, they don't know what they're doing and they don't know how to be together anymore. And like, the, I mean, I feel like that's very much in the Maya Angelou part where it's just like, there's, there's this thing where it's just like, everybody's having sex and like, nobody's committing. And like, I feel like that's, that's an, an old kind of idea that you could put with like, you know, any group of people, white people, whatever. But I feel like this movie is kind of like dealing with the kind of like gulf between the kind of lives that the aunties lived and the kind of lives that the kids are living right now. And so much of it is about like, um, like dealing with emotions and uh, like kind of like learning how to commit to each other in a way. And it's like, I don't know, it's kind of reminds me of like uh, that in the terms of themes it you ever watched that boondocks episode where martin luther king comes back and he's like watching bet and he's yes. just like he's <laughs> just like so upset and like ju- like that is that is kind of like the perspective that i see of this movie just like maya angelou just like looking at these kids and it's like what are what are you doing what is this but then it's also so funny because he is so young. It's not like he's commenting on a generation from a, a distance. Yeah. He's not at a remove, you know? The, right. The fact that there were so few black filmmakers in Hollywood, period. But right now you also have this guy. He's 25 years old. He's making a movie about people who are practically his age. Like, there's just a lot of filmmakers doing that. It's fucking yeah. hard to make a goddamn studio movie. Like. Yeah, is he, he's I don't think of him like, you know, you think of the sort of so many Hollywood movies of the past that mostly are not directed by black people are so moralistic and so, you know, in search of a fix or in search of a like, here's what needs to happen. And that like poetic justice is not like that, but which is great. Like and yeah. John Singleton in general is not like boys in the hood. Things happen that are bad and it's you know trying to talk about stuff but it also just kind of ends with like this is fucked up like yeah we're sad like you know this it's and and we know nothing's gonna change we assume that nothing is gonna change yeah Uh, yeah it's not trying to really teach you a lesson which i which i I like about boys in the hood and i that is a thing that i like about this movie is that it's not trying to teach you a lesson but it's kind of like a young man trying to be like man like i don't because I feel like so much of it is like Tupac not being in touch with his emotions and not being able to, you know, just be real with Janet. And it's also, but there's also the um, Regina King and, and Joe Tori, which that that's a whole thing where it's like, they can't, they also can't be real with each other either. And there's this thing where it's like, man, why can't we talk to each other? It just seems like to be the through line. Why can't we just, say what we're feeling and be honest with each other. And you know, he doesn't really, 
come up with an explanation for that. He just kind of explores it. Which I like. Like, yeah. And like, right. Joe Torrey and Regina, um, Regina King are like performing, you know, very their, their relationship very loudly. Yeah. And like, you know, they're they're bigger than life. And it's whereas right. Like Tupac and Janet Jackson are very afraid to admit anything sort of, you know, sensitive or vulnerable to each other. And like they they have a lot of their their guard is up and that put him in a fucking mail truck, drive him across California. <laughs> like, let's see what happens. Let's rattle it around. Well, I was seeing this thing. Do you know what his original pitch was for this movie? No. Was it like she's like a teacher maybe who like teaches kids valuable lesson about poetry? No, that was my pitch for this movie before <laughs> seeing it. Um, this is so this is like talking about what second movie he didn't make. OK, I'm just going to read this verbatim. John Singleton's original idea for Poetic Justice was to do an army film because he was upset that a friend of his was sent to fight in the Persian Gulf. It was going to be about a young G.I.'s wife named Justice who would marry a guy who was recruited from South Central Los Angeles and then would go off to live on an army base in Japan or the Philippines or Northwest. The man would spend all his money on his truck and not in supporting his family. He would eventually get mad at one of the CEOs and end up punching him out, which then gets him sent to jail. Justice would send him poems while he's locked up. She'd have babies, but with no money. The idea of Justice working at a hair salon came from her originally doing the hair of other army wives for extra money. Singleton ended up giving up the army idea since he'd have to do extensive research of living on an army base. Well, he also he like he came up with a movie. He cut 90 percent of the movie away and was like, but what about this person who works at a hair salon and is kind of bummed out? Right. right. Which speaks to just like, why don't I just simplify this and just make a movie about a person? Which I also think was him saying, like, you know, Boys in the Hood did not have a ton of substantive screen time for women. There are not many women uh, movies being made about African-American women, period. Let me correct that. I have the power to do that. And also knowing that if he cast a megastar, they would probably be pretty hands off with whatever he wanted to do in the film. Yeah, it's I I do appreciate. I mean, I have a very contentious relationship and I write about it a lot um, in my reviews and things about like what happens when a black male director is like, well, I'm going to try to understand women. (laughs) Going to turn Uh, the camera over here. Yeah. And it's like I've always just like. I respect it. I respect that they care. You know, I love my brothers, but then I'm always just like a lot of the uh, the conclusions that they come to for why black women are the way that they are, are really fucking weird. And I think that that's my issue with this movie. That's my underlining issue with this movie. But I, I do appreciate that he tries. And there are some things like the thing about justice, like as a character is that she has, she totally has reasons, like totally valid reasons for being the way that she is. And then everybody around her is just like, you know, like, why don't you like smile more? And why don't you wear nicer clothes? And like, why don't you like, why don't you like date a boy? And she's just like, I just, I just want to be left alone, man. And the, <laughs> and the movie just won't leave her alone. <laughs> well, she's unfortunately the star of it. So the movie keeps being like, hey, what's up, man? <laughs> Your movie's called Poetic Justice. You're justice. Did you know that? Like, how are you doing? Yeah. I mean, you, you said it, Jordan, that like the movie, it does ultimately end up being about Tupac coming to terms with his own emotions. Right. And learning how to be like a more emotionally intimate person. He is ostensibly the character who has the arc in this movie. Like she is the protagonist. But as much as the movie keeps on saying, like, come on, shake it up, 
she doesn't really have to change. I mean, she is fundamentally right. You know, she's the pretty much the correct person in every single scene, you know, whereas he is the guy who really has to change. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's something we've talked about. I mean, it's like he doesn't want to. Maybe that's why you have this overly dramatic opening. Like he doesn't want to load her character up with flaws and issues. So it's like, well, things there are terrible things have happened to her. And that's why she's in a funk. Whereas, right, like Tupac is also just kind of a pretty electrifying performer. I'm a fairly big fan of his screen presence in general. Like, so I guess he's also you're also just kind of like, I want to know what's up with this guy. But I do think the movie, especially in the latter half, is kind of just like more into more interested by him. And especially the ending, well, you know, like I always sign up with the idea that the 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 ending is the conceit of the movie, right? Whatever a filmmaker chooses to end on is pretty much the ultimate statement of what the movie was about up until that point. If the ending doesn't feel like it fits with the rest of the movie, it's probably a failing of how the movie was set up. But the ending of this movie is the accomplishment of him coming into the salon to apologize to her, to introduce her to his daughter. Like he's the one who's making the move, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's the Jerry Maguire. Like, he's the one who's like, I'm here. I'm ready. I guess this is Singleton's only movie about a f- with a female lead. I mean, Higher Learning is just like a big ensemble. That would be the closest. Like, sort of Jennifer Connelly, Chris- Christy Swanson. But, like, that's it. Like, yeah, it's true that he never really does this again. And he didn't make enough movies. Like, you know, maybe. Uh, sure. You know, but yes, it's a, it's a mostly male-driven oeuvre. And, and Jordan, to, like, your point, This is the exact point in time where Hollywood should have been letting Julie Dash make this movie. I'm not saying this movie in particular, but her version of this, right? Right, Like Boys in the Hood and uh, Dars of the Dust are both 91. Yeah, they are. And she famously struggles to get anything made. She does. I mean, Dars of the Dust is a more, obviously, Boys in the Hood is a freaking Hollywood movie. It's part yeah. of the reason it just like smashed things. I mean, Dars of the Dust is incredible, but yeah. obviously it's a, you know. He's innately a more commercial mainstream filmmaker than her. Yes, yes. But I mean, Julie Dash has certainly said like it's been fucking impossible to make to get any funding for anything like she's well, the kind of like the black women directors of the 90s. You know, you uh, there's Cheryl Denier, uh, Julie Dash, uh, Cassie Lemons and um, Leslie Harris. Yeah, Leslie Harris. And, you know, the well, it's weird. The weird thing about Leslie Harris is that she made the exact kind of movie that should have gotten her yes. a career similar to John Singleton's and it just didn't She's happen. the wildest one. She, yeah, that's I know, the that's wildest the, it's one. It's weird. Like that movie, Just Another Girl on the IRT is not a perfect movie, but it is very much like a bombastic, fun, interesting movie that like should have broken through and like, you know, I guess, I mean, obviously it was discussed. It's a big debut. Like if it, if it had come out now, it would be a huge deal. But for some reason at the time, It really wasn't. But in terms of like the other three, you know, they were doing more kind of like art housey work. And so I think that that's part of it because, you know, um, like, you know, I mean, I've talked I've talked in on other places and other videos and things about like how hard it was for me to find a copy of The Watermelon Woman and how I was like chasing down a VHS of it for years that I never got. Um, I only watched it for the first time, I think, like four years ago. <laughs> so that was a thing. Like a lot of those movies weren't really easy to find. 
But but yeah. Cheryl Dunn's another perfect example of that, where it's like, you know, she feels like she should have been able to transition more easily. You know, like it, it's usually easier for people to move up in terms of comedy directors. And it takes her years to get to make another movie. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, Cyril Dunye, her thing is like, yeah, but that's the thing. Like it, the 90s in terms of like how we think about black women, it's almost totally shaped by, you know, like John Singleton, Spike Lee and all of these things. And also the Players Club, which is <laughs> Ice Cube's magnum opus. <laughs> Like, uh, I'm so glad that he didn't, if he, I kind of wish Ice Cube had made a bunch of other movies just so that I could come on Blank Check to specifically talk about how (laughs) insane the Players Club is. Like, it does not, that is one of the wildest movies that I've ever seen. Just nothing, nothing about it makes sense. But yeah, it's like... It's interesting. Unambiguous hit, too. I mean, he could have made more movies. He... He 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 sure could. Martin Lawrence could have made more movies too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's- and, and and Cube kept like writing and producing movies. It feels like he just chose to never direct again. Yeah, I mean, which I am. You know, I, I'm okay. I'm I'm fine. <laughs> like uh, I'll be I'll I'll be okay. Oh, <laughs> 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 um, but yeah. So. I don't know. Like, I don't want to like go do like a whole treatise on it, but like it, it, when you watch poetic justice, you know, especially the, the parts with the, the women in the hair salon, like it's very clear that John Singleton is like, he's taking stuff that he's heard women say and putting them in their mouths. And like, that's interesting, but there's also like, for me, a sense that a sense of like, there's something missing in the way that they talk to each other like I I, like I wish it was better but it's it's something that like really can't be registered I can't explain what it is but that makes the beauty shop not pop as much as I want it to can I throw out a micro theory Mm -hmm. the other thing here is I feel like with movies like this right it's like if the filmmaker is going outside of the immediate purview of their understanding of the world, right? Uh, you know, a very male director trying to make a movie with a female lead. Uh, you have to sort of really be able to trust your collaborators to give you the insight that you do not organically have. Mm-hmm, and yeah. the actor that he is putting at the center of the film and kind of trusting as a key creative collaborator has also been so disproportionately famous since she was a child, you know? And he said, like, that one of the things that made Janet Jackson want to do this movie was she has always longed to have a normal life. That, like, part of the appeal for this movie for her was her getting to play act, not being a megastar by the time she was 13, you know? But it does mean that perhaps as she's giving insight into the movie, you know, it's like he's throwing out things that he's heard people say and she's throwing out things that she's heard people say because her perspective is also so different from uh, the everyday life of these characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's like a sense, there's like a sense of they're going for, they're going for authenticity. Um, <laughs> and it, it doesn't, it doesn't exactly work. Although like, I will say one of my favorite exchanges in, in the, 
in the salon is at, is at the end where there are those two women and they're staring at each other and then, and then they, they they like start getting into conflict they're gonna fight and then and then one was just like just remember every single time you kiss your man you're also like tasting my pussy i believe that that yep. shit is incredible. Yep. Like, <laughs> that's a great scene. The second major pussy breath joke in the movie, right? <laughs> yeah, it's sort yeah. of bookended. <laughs> yeah, that's. I, I wish that so much. The like, I would love just like a beauty salon movie where it's just that, where it's just like people just like kind of what beauty shop should have been to barbershop. A beauty shop was too like cartoony. That, that is my exact problem with Beauty Shop because I love the Barbershop movies. And I think Barbershop 3, in which it is a combo Barbershop Beauty Shop, does a better job of it than Beauty Shop does. Oh, yeah, totally. When they when they brought Nicki Minaj in there. Yeah, and Regina Hall and everything. That's much better for me. I just like the idea of a Beauty Shop, a Beauty Shop movie. And uh, once it gets into uh, the mail truck, it is uh, what a journey. What a journey we go on. It's odd, right? Yeah, because it's like, I mean, that seems to be to some degree his big conceit is like, I want to make two for the road, right? Like, I want to make this road romance picture. I want to make this ups and downs of a relationship kind of movie confined to a vehicle with two couples. You know, one real couple, one potential couple. It's also just wild to consider. I know that Ice Cube is in Boys in the Hood and, and Lawrence Fisher is in it, but like Boys in the Hood has... These actors who he's like plucking out of nowhere, they're making screen debuts. He's making this movie about like, hey, this is, you know, this is the life you don't know about. Like, this is real life. And here he is going for, again, like this, you know, these are real people. They got real problems. And he's casting these two huge, huge stars like beyond the acting like they're just I mean, Janet especially is just like a, a globe dominating force at this point. Like she's. Someone who like sells out, you know, a worldwide tour. She's one of the most famous people on the planet. And to a certain degree, there's a target on her back by casting her in this movie because there's that thing that often happens, especially with female superstars, where it's like, oh, you want to do this too now? Right. Sure, sure, sure. All right, Jana. Yeah. Well, you can't. You want it. Yeah. Tupac, I guess, is about to be a megastar. Like he's a star. He's a big name. But like, I, I feel like his peak is more than in the next couple years, right? Like that's when he, whatever crosses over. I mean, like what, you know, he, he does the sort of his cornier albums, which I, I still enjoy. Uh, me too. Cause I'm a big sap. I was always more of a Tupac kid because he's emotional. He's corny. Um, but he's, he's so good, uh, as an act. I just, I always like Tupac, like in, in any movie in in the, whatever the eight movies he made. Tupac is great in this movie. He's yeah. so great. He's in this so movie. good. He, he's only been in Juice before this, yeah. which he's also great in. Juice is like a big energy performance. Like that's just like, but like the, he's he's so yeah. He's just magnetic in this movie. He wrote this for Ice Cube explicitly. He wrote it for Ice Cube and Janet Jackson. There are all these stories of the other actresses like Jada Pinkett who were like vying for this role so hard. And Singleton said, "We never did casting. I wrote it for Janet Jackson. It was my explicit intent." I think he knew her a little bit because, I mean, he had done the Remember the Time video already at this point. So he he was in with Michael and everything. But um, he said, like, we never had auditions. And those other actresses who, like, had been reported were up for the role literally just showed up at the studio when the movie was announced 
because there were so few roles for black actresses that the announcement of a movie was like Jada Pinkett just showing up on the lot and being like, can I get an audition? But Jan Jackson was the only person. Um, he writes it for Ice Cube. Ice Cube turns it down. A, because he, I think, is already signed on to do Trespass at that point. And B, he said, I don't think I can pull off being a romantic lead. I don't I think, think I can do it. Right. I, I think he was totally right. Yeah, I, I don't know. Because there's like a... Because, you know, all of, like, Tupac's angry scenes, you know, he's got this, like, intense vulnerability, whereas, like, I feel like Ice Cube would just be intense. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what he's really good at. Right. At this point in time. Like, and probably through it. That's, that's usually what he can give you. Intensity, presence. But I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know what he would look like in this movie. I, I'd be interested to see, you know, him going in a more vulnerable direction, I guess. I feel like he would be terrifying in this movie. I, I do too. I, think he would <laughs> I mean, I, I think he turned it down. He turned down the John Singleton follow-up movie. Like he, he probably knew like, eh, I don't think this is going to work for me. No, I know. But he was just like, it was, you know, just like that. I'm not going to be able to pull that off. People won't see me that way. I don't think I can do it. You know? And, and it's like, we were talking so much about ice cube in the last episode, but like, you know, he's become a very effective movie star, but part of his effectiveness is I think he's very aware of what his range is. And he's been able to translate that over to different genres and di different types of characters, but he's very smart about not overreaching. And Tupac, like you watch Ice Cube when he comes on screen, Boys in the Hood, and you go, wow, this guy is a movie star. Like immediately, you know, this guy might not be a finely polished actor, but he's just engaging to watch. Whereas Tupac comes on screen in this movie and you're like, he's an actor. You know, he just immediately yeah. has that presence on screen. His interaction, his chemistry with everyone. He's so good at listening to people. And he's also just got those incredible eyes, you know? He was, he was so hot. So fucking hot. He was hot. so hot. <laughs> he's like one of the top five hottest people of the 90s or whatever, right? Like just... I'm inclined to agree. Like, I'm just like, I don't know if, if many people had a better face than him he like at the at the end um when oh god who who is the actress i feel because there are so many like um you know uh black woman character actresses in this movie and i want to know so i think it's uh i think it's tyra farrell who's the one who talks about how he has a how he has a cute nose mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is she right. does yeah it's also like he's got a cute everything the guy just looks good like that that scene him entering in and and flirting, you're just like, yup, abs absolutely, you're the star of this movie. Of course you are. Oh, my God. And his name being Lucky, like, come on. Like, just he's he has such romantic lead energy. I just remember. Do you guys remember, you know, do you remember the movie Notorious, uh, the Notorious B.I.G. biopic? Anthony Mackie plays Tupac in that movie. And Anthony Mackie is a, is a very handsome man. Uh, you know, like, no, no offense to his looks, but like. It's just like everyone else in that movie, like, you know, the, the Jamal Willard, the guy playing, you know, Biggie, like, obviously he like he looks like him. He's imitating him. He's going for a whole thing. But like when Anthony Mackie shows up as Tupac, you're like, nah, get the fuck out of here. Right. Like, this is no, not even close. No. Like, right. And when, <laughs> yeah. they, when they make the Tupac biopic, they cast a guy who had never been in a movie before who just looked so much like him because they were like, people aren't going to be able to get over it. His bone structure was so much a part of his like iconography. You just need to get that face. 
Man, remember when that movie came out? They didn't even screen it for critics. Yeah. And it made a bunch of money. And people were like, is this good? And everyone was like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no, it's not. No. Yeah. I, I didn't see it, but I do remember, like, poor... Poor, poor, poor Cat Graham. Poor Cat Graham. <laughs> Just having to like deal with uh, Jada Pinkett being so upset <laughs> about not being consulted about the movie. It's like Cat Graham is just a nice actress who is on Vampire Diaries. She took a job she didn't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Just not, not fair. Not fair. Not her fault. It was just such a weird phenomenon that was yeah. like. That movie came out and it was like, wait, did anyone announce this? And it's like, eh, no, kind it of. Came, no, it came out of nowhere. It was very unceremonious because I remember right. when the lead up to Notorious, I knew that Notorious was coming. It was huge. Notorious was like a big deal coming out. Yeah. yeah. It was like, came out Martin Luther King Day weekend. It yeah. was like months of hype. We got this guy. You won't believe he sounds like Biggie, like all that shit. And then, like, straight out of Compton, it's like, oh, my God, like, Ice Cube's son is playing Ice Cube, and he, you're going to, you know, that's going to blow your mind. Like, there was, was that like was one of the most like- watched trailers on YouTube. Like, everyone knew that thing was going to be a fucking hit. I remember, I guess we had maybe done, like, a Saturday record or something, but I remember being in a bagel shop with you when one of us got, like, saw on our phone the opening day numbers for All Eyes on Me. And we're just, like, flummoxed. <laughs> but it was, like... It made sense that people wanted to see the movie. It just came out of nowhere and vanished just as quickly and no one ever talks about it. It's just funny to think about. I think it was like made by some white... I feel like it was made by some white guy. Like I It was don't, made I, by I, Benny Boone. Was it? Yeah, it was directed by Benny Boone. That's like the weirdest thing about are, it. Are and you it, fucking kidding? Really? I am not kidding you. Yeah, but it definitely it had that kind of energy. It feels like I directed that movie. Like, that's the problem. I feel like that's why no one was excited for it, because it looked like I just assumed it was some white guy. Like, I don't yes. know why I thought that. <laughs> yes, it, it has ginormous Griffin Newman tries to make a hip hop biopic energy. Oh, man. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. Tupac. You know, I, I love that he he comes in and he flirts with Janet and I love how mean she is to him. Although, like, it's very hard. She is mean. Jan- Janet being mean is something that, like, it's a little hard. It's been a, it's a hard sell for me because I can always feel like I don't believe that Janet Jackson is a mean person, but she tries and I appreciate that. Well, I think that was like another thing I was reading, you know, led her to want to do this was she wanted to seem more personable. And part of being more personable, I think, is also being a little more rough around the edges because she had spent her entire life with a very sort of like carefully crafted public persona, you know, and everything was designed towards being as kind of like uh, likable and aspirational and electric and uncontroversial as possible to a certain degree. And, you know, things like the Rolling Stone cover, like, happen after this, you know? I think she was trying to, like, to some degree demolish this idea of just being some kind of, like, uh, ivory tower pop princess. But I think she's really good in this movie. Yeah, she's good. I like Janet Jackson as an actor, basically, always, I think. I think I always find her to be very locked in and charming. Now, like, right? I, w- like, I was I, looking this up after this. Obviously, she had done a lot of TV up until this point, right? She's on Good Times a bunch. Like, that's, that's so what she I think did, of the mind, different yes, strokes. She did a season of right. fame. Right. That's what she had done. This is her first movie. 
David, can you name what her second movie is? I'm going to guess that it's Clumps from the way that you're setting it up. Yes. Nine years later to eight years but later. She, sorry. I remember Seven, her, look, I haven't seen off. Clumps. Yeah. I haven't seen Clumps in 20 years, but I remember her being very yes. cute and fun and Agreed. Clumps. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. But everyone was sort of like, oh, nice of her to do this. It's weird that this is her second movie that she could have done so much after Poetic Justice. Then do you know what her next movie is after that? Mm-hmm. For Colored Girls? Why did I get married? Oh, right. She's in that. And she's in the sequel. Remember the sequel where the men, the poster, the men are all wrapped up with one ring yeah. and the women are wrapped up with the other ring? Yes. Oh, why did I get married? Right. Then she does. Why did I get married too? And then she does for Colored Girls. Those are her only five films. She's made five movies. It feels like she's been in more. Yeah. She had three Tyler Perry movies, a Clumps movie, and a Singleton movie. There you go. That's Janet Jackson's film career. Her and the and the Why Did I Get Married movies are it's some of the wildest performances that I have ever seen. Like her energy in those movies are it's so chaotic, especially the second one. And I did not expect that from her. The second one becomes like a murder mystery, right? And the second one is so intense. <laughs> They're on vacation, right? Because the first one is like, these guys are like, why did I get married? But like the second one is like, all right, well, we already dealt with that. So they go on vacation and there's something, what, something crazy happens. There's a murder, right? Isn't there a murder in that movie? They go to like a tropical couples <laughs> retreat and someone dies. I don't know. I just I just remember this scene, this this wild scene with Janet Jackson and her husband and like something having to do with like a giant cake at the office and this whole thing about her like calling him a bitch and like just like a lot of her just calling him a bitch and this making a big show of it and like embarrassing him. And I was just like, is this is this really necessary? I, I just remember seeing the trailer for the first movie and going like, OK, I get it. So it's like the big chill but with some like men are from mars women are from venus energy and then seeing the trailer for the second movie and i'm like is this an almodovar film like why is it like shots of her holding a knife and screaming she really she really goes in for that movie and it's such a weird movie to go in for yeah well i do feel like tyler perry he usually is like telling his actors like you know get really theatrical like you can you know you can really have fun here or whatever. Maybe that's part of it. But why did I get married to strikes me as like where he's in Sandler mode, where he's like the movie's set in uh, the Bahamas. <laughs> like, you know, and, and like, let me call Lionsgate and tell him to book a plane because uh, we're going to the Bahamas. My character has a medical condition where he needs to be massaged at all times on screen. <laughs> I mean, if you have to do like one to two movies a year, like you might as well like have fun. Make them into trips. But then I read. So those three Tyler Perry movies are Lionsgate. Right. And and the two Why Did I Get Married movies are are in the upper half of his highest grossing films, especially for the early part of his career. Lionsgate signs a big deal with Janet Jackson, develop movies to be in more movies. None of them ever happen. In like 2011, 2012, they were like. We're in business with Janet Jackson. Here's the deal. She's got her own label. And she's like, I'm going to make sci-fi movies. I'm going to make comedies. I'm going to do everything. Nothing happens. I would love a Janet Jackson sci-fi movie. Yeah. Wow. Now I'm just, yeah. It's inter- When I was younger, I feel like I was very hard on her performance. 
And I don't know why. I think I was I was a meaner critic when I was younger. I like I used to write reviews like in high school and I read them. It's just like this is this is really harsh. What was going on with me? It's me. No, I, I, I think everyone is more like that in high school. I feel like I have just become such a softy as I age. Where I'm like, I don't know. They made an effort. Everyone showed up like where he's like when high school, you're like, well, no, this did not clear the bar that I know one has to right especially if you're a a film dork it's like that's the age where you're starting to develop like critical thought and you're like okay now i know what bad things are like i I was yeah like i was way meaner about tyler perry movies when i was young and like now i watch them but i'm just like i'm having a great time man like it's (laughs) that's sort of the idea of them right i mean it's just like look i I know i didn't see the one on netflix where people were like did he he, like, did he even like give people their lines before they like turned <laughs> on the cameras? What, what's that one called? The wig. It's a, a fall from grace, but uh, but I but I call grace. it there the wig go. because there's just absolutely <laughs> no. There was I saw the wig and I was like, no, we are absolutely one hundred percent not doing it with this fucking wig. Um, like it's it's like not it's still not as bad as that lace front that he gave Shamar Moore in Diary of a Mad Black Woman, where it's like a lace lace front cornrows, a cornrow wig. I have never <laughs> I had never seen anything like it. I'm never gonna see anything like it since. It's fucking insane because he's always wearing the headband, and the yeah. headband is to hide the fact that it's a lace front, and I just couldn't. Yeah, I'm looking at it here. It's it's a nightmare. It's, <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> At least then it was like he was making those movies for not a lot of money. But for a fall from grace, it's like he has Netflix money. He's a mogul. And like whenever he's interviewed, it's like Clint Eastwood, like shooting the fake, you know, the baby doll in American Sniper. He's just like, I got to go, man. Yeah, we got a day to shoot this. Like, I don't have to fuck around. Put a wig on her. Like, I don't care. Yeah, his his schedule is is wild. Yeah, it's yeah, I would say, though, like top tier Tyler Perry, the family that prays and Medea goes to jail, <laughs> even mm. though Medea goes to jail is a movie where you have to deal with the actress who played Rudy Huxtable being like an adult. Right. And, like and that's very jarring. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, she's she's good in this movie. I, I think a lot of her Janet's like facial acting is really great in this movie. I don't think I really appreciated it when I was younger, but like she she does a lot of work with her face. I think my I think that my issue was when I was younger is that I didn't like the way that she recited the poems, but the poems are a very <laughs> interesting part of yeah, it. Yeah, look, I mean, Jordan, not everyone can recite these poems with the beauty and grace that I gave at the beginning of this episode. It's a tall order, right? Uh, but no, it is. It is. It is, uh, uh, jokes aside, an incredibly big ask of anyone to be like, cool. So Maya Angelou has written original poems for this film, and you have to be the one to recite them in voiceover, let alone someone who is already that well-known and whose voice is that famous, but is trying to step away from the public perception create a new character. It's interesting. You keep thinking like, when are the poems going to play a plot role? And that's not the vibe that Singleton's going for. And no, nor does it need to be. I don't like that. Like, I do not need this to be about someone who, whose poetry unlocks something in the plot, but like it maybe it, it maybe throws viewers where they're like what what's with the interstitials where it's voiceover poetry i don't like what did that have to do with them in the mail truck fighting 
Yeah, I, I really I really don't know. They they don't really connect. They they take up like space in the movie and they, they're nice. They chill yeah. me out. I mean I guess I guess when like she's alone or like when she's thinking, like it's in lieu of like voiceover or silence. But yeah, it, it's weird the way that it's set up. But I guess we should talk more about the mail truck in this journey because they're going to they're doing um, Tupac and Joe, uh, Joe Torre are like doing a run and um, Regina King and Janet Jackson are trying to go to a hair show and it's like in the same place so they're just like all riding together and Regina King's already with Joe Torre and it's just <laughs> Regina King and Joe Torre <laughs> in this movie are so stressful just such yeah. a stressful couple <laughs> very much so Joe Torrey, I only really know him as he has a big arc in ER. I have no idea if any of you uh, are aware of this. I know, I know he's sort of like was on Def Comedy Jam. He's, and, he's, you know, he's hosting Def Comedy right. Jam at this point. He's the guy who replaces Martin Lawrence when Martin Lawrence blows up. So uh, Singleton's very much ca- casting him off of that. Right. He's he's on ER as this guy who gets in this big sort of protracted fight with Dr. Green for many episodes i don't know him that well like what happened to joe tory where where did he go he i mean i think he's just still doing comedy i i had, but i i had seen joe tory in some movies before that he's in tales from the hood and i remember that yes he's in, he's in house party three he's in um strictly business which is this halle berry movie that nobody talks about ever uh, which is it's really yeah, interesting. I don't know this movie. Yeah, it's like a it's like a Halle Berry romantic comedy, and no, this looks fun. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a fun movie. I I don't know why people don't talk about it. Um, he's also in the Joe Torre movie that I have seen the most is Sprung. I have seen Sprung a lot, which is also like a a two couples kind of thing, kind of a structure for a movie. It, it does feel like that's the zone in which he's perfect, you know, is being like the guy in the second couple. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think you're right that he just kept doing stand up. I mean, he, he, I bet he's a guy who, by all accounts, is still headlining across the country. Well, yeah, I mean, I assume that's what happened to Bill Bellamy, too. And like, I associate them with the same kind of era. Right. Uh, you know, it feels like where did that guy go? And the answer is he's probably making three million dollars a year. Right. He's just right. He just works. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just I think of him. I associate him so strongly with ER. But right. And he is. They're very stressful. Regina King's in all of John Singleton's early movies. And he's usually playing a very big character. I feel like that was her early, obviously, 227. But like, you know, like that's her early screen where she gets slotted in. Like you're going to play someone who's loud, someone who's opinionated, someone who's just kind of like, you know, boosting up the energy anytime she's in the movie. I love her. She's great. I yes, I just I'm I am always thrilled to watch uh Regina King. I'm never not enjoying myself watching her do anything. I just think she's such a fucking pro. Uh and she's fun in this. It's also like we've just watched Boys in the Hood where she's electric but she's got so little screen time. It just feels nice to see her being given this much even though we now live in a reality where Regina Hill actually, uh, Regina King finally gets to do a lot. Well, yeah, it's so interesting because like Regina King is like 
was one of my favorite actresses growing up. Like she was one of the first actresses where it's like, I know who she is. I like her whenever she's in something I'm into it. And it's been so interesting, like watching people like figure out who she is, like very late (laughs) in the game, in my opinion. Like in the last five years, basically. Right. Yeah. It's so strange because like she has been doing television since the eighties. Her first movie was in 91. Like she's, yeah. And she, I mean, I think part of it is that she's worked mostly, you know, she does like a lot of mostly black movies. What's up for Jerry Maguire, which it's so weird. <laughs> the thing is, she she's so dominant and incredible in Jerry Maguire. Now, obviously, lots of people pop out of that movie. So it's not like, but post that, you would think like, oh, give her her own TV show or give her movies. And yet still, she's kind of just like, a very reliable supporting player. Obviously, there's also the stuff where it's like, yeah, did you know she's the voice of Riley and Huey and the Boondocks? Right. Like, you know, like there's all that stuff. But like, I remember when she was in Ray in 2004 and she got Oscar buzz for that role. She's incredible in Ray. Yeah. Even then, it felt like people were just sort of discovering Regina King again. And then like, it just happened again five years ago where it's like, you know, who's the best Regina King. And I'm like, yeah, she's the best. She's been doing this shit for 30 years. She's been doing comedy forever, but then suddenly she started doing like serious stuff, like the leftovers and seven seconds in American crime. And then everybody's just like, Oh, she's incredible. It's like, I'm so sorry that you guys don't respect comedy. (laughs) Like, I think that that's exactly what it is. That's definitely part of it. And, and you forget Southland, the transitional thing. She's so good on Southland, the forgotten prestige cop show of the uh, whatever early uh, teens. What are we calling that? The twenty yeah. teens? Sure, whatever. Whatever that is. Oh yeah, yeah um, Southland, the thing that she did with uh, Mr. OC, the OC boy, Ben McKenzie. Ben McKenzie never doesn't work. Ben McKenzie just works. OC, I'm done. Going to Southland. I'm done with Southland. I'm going to Gotham. You guys, you guys know that Gotham ran for a hundred episodes. I directed three of them. You did. Me, you did Mr. A good job. OC. You showed up to the task. Did you know I'm married to Morena Bakarin? That that lady from from you know Firefly and shit. Yeah, we met on the set of Gotham. It's just one of those things where you're like, what's that actor doing? Oh, oh, I see. They've constantly work that's what they're doing okay right i forgot uh regina king kind of has that like what, what, what's regina king doing lately turning in good performances right always <laughs> always always good always good literally has never missed i mean i'm just looking here so it's like you're right okay so you go like it's the early singletons right doing friday and then jerry Maguire, which was supposed to be janet jackson janet was cast and dropped out because it conflicted with her touring schedule I wonder if even she had maybe recommended Regina King for the role, but it was absolutely supposed to be Janet Jackson playing uh, Marcy Tidwell. Then her run after Jerry Maguire, where it feels like she really should level up, is like how Stella got her groove back, enemy of the state, mighty Joe Young, right? It's like kind of whatever supporting roles in like... It's supporting roles. That's what it is. She's the friend. 2001, down to earth. Ah, yes, Down to Earth, another cable staple, that movie. She Mm -hmm. rules in that movie. I rewatched that recently. She's so fucking good in that, but that's someone finally letting her be the female lead of a movie. And then she ends up, like, you look at the 2000s, you talk about Jordan, like, people not recognizing her. Just as a collection of things for her to be in that should have helped her, like, cross over in terms of just name, uh, you know, recognition. 
Daddy Daycare, Legally Blonde 2, Cinderella Story, Ray, Miss Congeniality 2. Yeah, she's in she's in the sequels to the uh both Miss Congeniality and Legally Blonde. The the, the less liked sequels. But that's like a three a three year run where she's just in big movies with big stars playing yeah. big parts. Usually I mean she's like the second lead of Miss Congeniality too. She's incredible in Ray. Yeah. I do not remember her role in um a Cinderella story, I must say, but I'm sure she's I'm sure she's good. Also, I think it's interesting that, uh, well, I mean, this isn't a big movie in general, but A Thin Line Between Love and Hate is such a weird movie for her to be in because she's playing like the nice girl. But meanwhile, like Lynn Whitfield is, of course, like the main woman in that. And I don't I wish more people watched it because that's a fucking weird movie. Have you all seen it? (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, I know Martin Lawrence. Here's what I know about A Thin Line Between Love and Hate. I know Martin Lawrence directed it. And I know that the poster has the papyrus font, which always blows my mind every time I see it. I'm not trying to do an SNL avatar bit. You should please look up the poster. It, it's the only comedy brave enough to use papyrus. Papyrus is not usually the domain of comedies. It's so bizarre that people think that this is a comedy because if you watch it, it it's an erotic thriller. It's so really? weird that it's yes. I believe my reading of a thin line between love and hate is that it is an erotic thriller. I don't get what's supposed to be funny about it at all. It's not funny to the, me. The, the tagline <laughs> is while some women are waiting to exhale, this one is ready to get even. So it's coming for waiting to exhale. Yeah. It's like get out of the way. We're going to eat your lunch waiting to exhale. Uh, and I know that Lynn Whitfield has a gun on the poster. He's going like, what's going on? And he's doing full comedy face on the poster. His head's tilted. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's so it's so weird. Like, it's so, it makes me think, like, it was it sold as a comedy because he thinks it's a comedy. Because at the end, like, Lynn Whitfield is having this, like, full breakdown. She's, like, attacking him. You think she's going to kill him. She's like, she's, like, attacking Regina. She's, like, angry at Regina King. Like, it's, like, a full, like, single white female freak out at the end. <laughs> it's not funny at all all right i'll check it out yes let's yeah. see please, it's on please netflix check how do i watch a thin line between love and hate just to to circle back to the regina king talk you talk about like it feeling like people are 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 discovering her quote unquote now you know for the first time uh I even feel like there was that sense when she won the emmy for watchmen of like oh finally regina king's getting her due and it's like Motherfucker, she already had three Emmys before this. She just quietly won three Emmys in the 2010s. I was she's she had won an Oscar before she won the Emmy for Watchmen. Correct. Yeah. But but even then it felt like on Watchmen, people were like, finally. And it's like she won an Oscar. Yeah, but Watchmen is her getting a lead role. All her sure. other stuff was supporting stuff, and Watchmen was her having a big lead role winning. I guess I guess that was the difference. Now she's making movies. I you know I, I support Regina King. I thought her movie was uh, good. I was not. Wow. I was not the biggest fan of it. No, I, I thought it was a humongous okay. review from David. That says. was that that pause. Like you know, you could put an entire lifespan between that pause. I like which I, I I liked a lot of. I it's a play. I don't know. Like it felt it felt you know it had a lot of the sort of like. Uh, play to screen. David, I, I I don't think I've heard you pause that long since the last time I said, I'm Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for rushing to that joke. Please. Of course. Yes. I had to. Good. I had to. You I had, had to. to. You had to. I had to. Um, it was a telling post. Like that, I don't know. Have, have you guys seen One Night in Miami? That movie has like a lot of like 
like whenever she can, she's doing something. And I'm like, you know, whenever she can sort of fit in like flourish, I like the flourish. It is just a lot of that movie is people sitting in a room and talking to each other, which is, you know, is what it is. Yeah, I've seen the I re- I reviewed it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I mostly talked about the conversations that are had in it because I right. that's most of what the movie is. But I but I do think that like for what it is, like for the format of just like uh kind of a one room kind of story, I I think that she does a really really good job. I actually think that she does a better job at it than like how Mulroney's black bottom functions. I think she it's I interesting. Think, I think she figures out how to do the whole theater thing better than that movie. But I'm, you know, in a minority what I think about Ma Rainey. <laughs> She's also Regina King's been like an incredible stalwart uh TV director. Like she's directed 15 TV episodes in the last eight years. I mean, I think and she, you can, I think interviews with her sort of bear this out. She has some point where she's like, I'm sick of making movies and playing the third lead or right. the best friend or whatever. And I went to TV and there were much better roles for me there. And it seems like, cause the first thing she directed was a Southland episode that it's just that classic thing of like, you know, Hey, do you want to give a, you know, an episode a shot? And then that's, that's like the sort of the film school that you can do. And she, as you can see, like, yeah, she right, did. But she did six, but being Mary Jane scandal, the catch animal kingdom, Greenleaf pitch. This is us shameless. Good doctor insecure before she does one night, in Miami. Yeah. And that's all in like seven or eight years. Look, Regina King rules. This is what we're trying to say. I like her a lot in this movie. Joe Torrey kind of stresses me out. I think I, he's good, th- but the characters, he's uh, uh, stressful. I, I think that I think that Chicago is in a very weird position in the movie because he I don't know. I, I forgot like how quiet he is. Like for some reason I remembered the movie being Yeah, it's it's interesting because like Tupac is very quiet, but Joe Torrey is also very quiet, and you kind of expect the other friend to be loud, but really the only loud character is Regina King. Regina King's like kind of loud for everyone, which makes their fight scenes really weird because like of course like he ends up hitting her, and that's like the huge thing where he get where he gets left. And, you know, he's not in the rest of the movie, but before he hits her, he's like very chill. Like he hits her, like hitting her was just like terrible, but like he hits her like the, because his feelings are hurt. And you feel like his feelings had been hurt throughout the entire movie. And he just didn't, he didn't know how to talk about his feelings, which I mean, this right. movie is so much about men not knowing how to talk about his feelings, but he just sits there. He just, he just stands there and his feelings are so hurt. And then there's this long pause and then he hits her. And that's like, it. it's, it's interesting that he's just out of the movie after this. I understand why, but I kind of wish that he his character was a better friend with Tupac so that they could like talk about this because like Tupac gets a lot of points for being like, no, no, we don't hit women. I'm just going to leave you on the side of the road. Um, but I, I wish they had she like, doesn't intervene at first though, like, which is interesting. Right. Like yeah. they do, they let that moment happen where he does the kind of like, look, it's between them. I don't know. Like he, you know, he sort of does that. Like, well, I just want to stay out of this. And then, when Janet Jackson, you know, when uh, Justice gets involved, then then he's like, OK, you know, and then he right steps up. But I do like that you give him that weird, unsympathetic moment there. 
Yeah. And I mean, it, it feels like a very, you know, realistic response to like, especially from a man like that. It's just like, well, you know, like this isn't my business. They're fighting. Yeah. The problem with, uh, <laughs> with uh, Chicago, um, Joe Chicago. and, and Chicago. Regina King is that like, she's just really mean to him and he just really does nothing until that hit. Like he's just, <laughs> Well, even that earlier moment at the when they go to the family reunion and she's flirting with the other guy and Janet Jackson with justice goes up to her and is like, he's going to go ballistic like he's going to beat you. You feel like that's not my read on this guy. No. And even when he charges towards her, it doesn't feel like he's about to really get violent, you know? Yeah, no, he doesn't. He does not read like a violent person. And I don't know if that's like a performance issue or what it is. It might be a writing issue or maybe not. Like maybe the idea is this should come out of nowhere, but it does. I'm not sure if that's true. Like it might more just be a like, this hasn't been layered in quite well enough for it to, to you know, to I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I would love. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, well, Chicago's a very hard character to like get a read on because the movie isn't about him. And usually when you have a best friend character, he kind of like comes out at the gate being like, this is who I am. This is what I like. He has to basically declare himself because he doesn't get to have these like specific character moments. And he, Joe Torrey never really does. Like, I mean, his clothes are loud and he has the thing with the brush. Right. It's just it's just his style. Like, that's all the real characterization there is. This guy cares a lot about how he looks. And like even the hairbrushing, it just like it almost feels like a nervous tick because he he takes out the brush during the fight and you just feel like he just needs to put his hands on something. And they already do the joke about him stuttering, you know, and then he's got that big scene, not that big scene, but there's the scene where he he rips into uh, Lucky for not dressing well. Like it all feels a little bit cartoonish, you know, in terms of just like this guy's just about grooming and nothing else. Whereas Regina King uh, is, as you're saying, like she comes in, and it's like, this is my deal as a character. Here's what I'm about. And you're like, OK, I get it. Right. You know, like she succeeds in that. Oh, my God. Just like her going and drinking that 40. Just like she's just like dedicated to that 40. And anybody who has an issue with it, it's just like, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to drink. <laughs> and you know what? It's it's very funny until it's not. But yeah, it's funny at first. <laughs> I, I do just also like movies that are designed this way where it's like okay you have a mail truck right it's this unusual like layout with the two seats in front and then all this room in the back the the dramatic shifts of the movie are pretty much going to be decided by the four square of who's where in the vehicle yeah ben did you ever work in a mail truck am i making this up ben is the mail no, truck yeah. something to okay. i worked for fedex and i packed those trucks Right. But you never drove one around. It does feel like very freeing that they can just take the mail truck on the road. Oh, man, I would love to be the ones in the back. Yeah, you never went when you were a FedEx driver. You never went on a road trip where you took uh, your friend who you seem to not even like that much, his (laughs) girlfriend and his girlfriend's friend. No, never, never worked out. Cool. 
Man, yeah, it's it's so interesting that they're just like fighting in the back because like I just keep on thinking like I would just be having sex back there and just like having I'd be like smoking some weed and like, yeah. you know, like and it would be just a thing where like my version of this movie would just be like them coming out and just being them just kind of like peeking out, just being like, oh, it looks like they're falling in love in there anyway. Um, <laughs> back to what we were doing. There's a sweet romance happening on the other side of the cab. Okay, great. Like, sure. hey, we're back to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they're so, but Tupac and Janet are so guarded. They're so, I mean, they really don't like emotionally connect for the first two thirds of this movie basically right no and there's that huge fight early where she gets out of the truck and wants to leave her behind i mean it's it, you know oh yeah well because she's like she's just like you know what i'm a black woman and you shouldn't call me a bitch and you have to respect me and he's just like i don't care about you bitches like so much in this movie is just like bitches man it's like, right <laughs> if i'm a bitch then your mom is a bitch or whatever like which that is whole, a, which is a great dialogue. line right. because that's exactly true <laughs> like it's, I mean, it is this, I feel like, especially with these early films, Singleton really trying to make movies about, like, emotional intelligence, right? I mean, I think, like, about this dividing line between, like, you know, how someone becomes an adult, especially since so much of these movies are kind of these, like, nature versus nurture debates, and there's so much about the role of, like, families and these people's development and everything. And then you have the Maya Angelou speech later where she says, like, but at a certain point, like, a person takes responsibility for who they are themselves um you know it, it's on you uh i i feel like all of that is you know and and so much of just the arc of this character is him learning how to uh actually engage with other people in a meaningful way yeah oh we we haven't talked at all about um his baby mama and 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 tone loke <laughs> man I, I love Tone Loke. I do. Does so. anyone have a better voice than Tone no, Loke's, you know, no growl? One. Oh, my God. What what a great. And he's, like, really blowing. I mean, the early 90s. Yeah. I always just forget how robust his movie career was for a time there. Just for a little chunk. Just for, like, the first five years of the 90s. He is everywhere. and And he is always killing it. He's always great. Posse, Surf Ninjas, Poetic Justice. Car 54, Where Are You, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, Blank Check, and Heat. And then Heat he's- is the, Heat's like the, the, the crown on top. He has that one hilarious scene in Heat. Oh my God. He was also in a cartoon that I- See Baron a- Jamal? Wow, I totally forgot about that. Um, <laughs> what, what I was thinking about was actually um, <laughs> Fern Gully and Baby's Kids. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, he's he's the he's the baby in Baby's Kids, right? Who pulls the plug on Las Vegas. Is that right? Yeah, he's Pee Wee. And in Fern Gully, I feel like he's just like a giant lizard and he gets a song. And I remember that song. <laughs> See, I was really, really into Sea Bear and Jamal, which was a, an animated series, a Saturday morning cartoon in which uh, Tone Look played a hip hop teddy bear. He was an anthropomorphic teddy bear with a bad attitude. I need to watch this immediately because I because I, I had heard of it, but I've never seen it. His song in Fern Gully, just FYI, is called If I'm Going to Eat Somebody, It Might As Well Be You. Yes. Uh, he's, yeah, he's about to eat. 
one of the hot fairies or whatever. And, you know, I, I, I you know, remember Ferngully, it's, it's a bunch of hot wood elves, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, Tone Loke, uh, he's great. But yes, the early part of this movie, I'm sorry, we got, we got caught up in Tone Loke, but uh, that we, we didn't even really talk about uh, Lucky's home life, like his whole, his whole situation that is the reason he's so emo and distant and, you know, tough to connect to. He and Tone Loke both have uh, children with the same woman who has a history of drug addiction. Tone Loke is dealing and uh, Lucky is incredibly concerned about his daughter growing up in that environment, despite the fact that he and Tone Loke appear to be kind of closer friends than him in Chicago. Yeah. He seems to get along better with Tone Loke. They are pals in this movie. And I, I yes. wish that there was more of Tone Loke because they're just like friends. It's because Tone looks good. Yeah, he's it, good. It, He's just like yeah. an earthy actor with just a lot of charisma. And you're just like, yeah, you just buy that people get along and with him. And the best voice yeah. of all time. Yeah, he's just yeah. like the kind of guy who's just like sitting on the porch. And it's like, I'm just going to spend a couple hours with this guy. Like, we're going to share a blunt and we're going to have a conversation. And it's going to be great. Man, I miss sharing blunts so much. I miss Tone Loke. He's around, I believe. Yeah, I think Tone Loke's still still with us, yeah. Yeah. He is, yeah. I mean, we talked about almost every other actor in the movie Blank Check has died. So it's there's a there seems to be a blank check curse that does not extend to our podcast, but does extend to that cast. The cast of Blank Check, yes. Tone Loke has to be on guard. I'll say also, I'm on Tone Loke's IMDb page right now. His uh his photo, his main photo on IMDb is him on the red carpet for Titan AE. Uh, with a, his arm in a sling pointing at the camera looking surprised it's it's a really good photo <laughs> oh yeah damn wow like it's got sort of like what are you doing here energy and it's like tone look wh- what are you why is your arm in a sling what are you doing at the titan AE premiere oh man titan AE. that's a movie that i've never finished that's a movie that i start and never finish ever um, yeah, the Titan A.E. is a movie anytime you throw it on, you're like, this has to be good. And then like five minutes in, you're like, oh, no. right, this is just boring. Yeah. At, at some point, I'm going to like this. <laughs> right. Like, come on. It's a Don Bluth sci-fi apocalypse movie. And then you're just like, why is this so dull? Yeah, I, I truly don't know. But yeah, um, love, love this tone look scene. And then you get into it. And then it's the whole thing. This scene is kind of like kind of like emblematic of like my issues with John Singleton and women where it's just like this woman is not only like on drugs, but she's also like having sex with a guy in the house and doing drugs while her daughter is watching cartoons while Tone Loke is is on like um, on the porch while Tupac is there. Like there's just like so many, so many things happening. <laughs> it's, it's the most like, let's talk about the issues seen in the movie where you're like, all right, we get it. Jesus. Like, yeah, it's way too on the nose. It reminds me of like all of the drug stuff in Jungle Fever, which I <laughs> But at least the drug stuff in Jungle Fever, which I know you uh, like, is presented like operatically. Like that's the one like Spike Lee just at least knows to like dial everything up yeah. like crazy. Whereas this is like more just being like, oh, well, this is like a hard hitting thing that's happening. And it but it feels, you know, soapy. Well, that's the thing is like, you know, 
Spike Lee was always, I, I'm not going to put this in the past, sense. Spike Lee's entire career is so much about genre and tonal experimentation, right? And mashing those things up in a way that to a certain degree has always prevented him from being able to like cross over into blockbuster territory because so many people are just always turned off by like, I don't get it. Why is this scene so goofy? Why is this scene so operatic? Why is this scene so dramatic? And John Singleton was always trying to be a little more like uh, uh, focused, you know, uh, in, in his tone in any given film. The one movie of his that weirdly feels that playful is Too Fast, Too Furious, which is the one movie where John Singleton's like, I'm trying fucking everything, every scene. But I think it, it bites him in the ass in a scene like this in the movie where he doesn't have the latitude to be able to really like play with tone enough to pull that scene off in any way. Yeah, no, the, the, the scene doesn't work. And it's also just like when you think about it in the wider context of this movie, it's just kind of like, why is it here? Like, I, I you know, we need to meet the daughter. I understand that. But it's like, why, if we're not coming back here, why does the scene have to be like this? Similar to her to Q-tip getting shot, right? It's like, well, this is what's up with them, and I'm like, you didn't need to yell. I, you know, I can I can be into these characters without this being screamed at me. I I also think, like Singleton, one of his main, you know, sort of like concerns is the importance of the father, right? In in the raising of a child, and what bums me out a little bit is that, like, in this movie, it's set up where it's like. Well, the father has to step up because the mother is such a catastrophe, as opposed to it feeling like this character's arc works just as well, if not better, if it is he is just not putting in the time as a father. And uh, by the end of the trip, he realizes I need to show up. I need to be there more for my daughter rather than it being like I need to save her from this, you know, Um, and and boys in the hood has, a uh, you know, obviously like. The the uh, Angela Bassett character is like hyper competent in that movie, but it still becomes about like, no, you need to just be with your father. You know, both of these movies have this thing of just like it has to just be the father and the child in very different forms. Yeah. Yeah. The whole uh, I love the I love kind of like the joke about that. And um, don't be a menace. Just this like like I just need to drop you off in the hood. Like you just need to spend some time there. Specifically, <laughs> I I do think the Jennifer Lewis scene's very good. Yeah, and I kind of wish that it was just kind of like that. Like if she was just like, you know, you need to go see your daughter. Like you could just throw that in <laughs> instead of yeah, right. And like him showing up at the salon with the daughter at the end of the movie does feel like huge emotional growth. But that doesn't have to. You don't have to sacrifice the female character in order to make that happen. You know. Right, exactly. Like the like the mom doesn't need to be this whole the whole stuff with the mom just like leads to a bunch of other questions. Like, what were they doing together? Like, he seems like Justice is like a relatively quiet person, but his reaction to her is like so like, oh, this bitch. And it's it's weird. Like when this is who your baby mama is, like, wouldn't Justice seem like like very, very chill in comparison already? Like, wouldn't you be nicer to her? Uh, yeah, I kind of just can't even imagine them having a prior conversation 
let alone having a child together, you know? No. Yeah. It's just one. Like, I feel like it'd be one of those things where it was just like, it happened at a party. He immediately regretted it. And then he was just like, um, but I still don't even know how that would happen at a party because I just, I, I only just imagine Tupac brooding. Like I can only see him brooding. And that's his energy the whole movie. Like it's so consistent. Yeah. I do think the ending scene is very sweet though. The ending scene is great. I, I, I always love a scene about like dads not being able to do their daughter's hair. Love it's that. just nice. Just, just I like them. Yeah, I like them. Just, this movie takes these like wild swings sometimes where you're like, oh, I, you know, I don't know if I if I saw that coming. But right. I do like them pretty much throughout. Let's also just say Tupac is so much fun during the family reunion. Oh my God. Yeah. I love that they just like show up at this reunion and like, and they're just like, well, this is a big extended family. We can just say that they're related. Right. Like they're trying to find the angle for how could we con our way into pretending that we're relatives. And then the drunk uncle comes up and just serves it to them on a plate. It's just like, hey, cousin. (laughs) Yeah. And they're like, well, great. Thank you for doing all of our work for us. Yeah, I just love, and this is also totally something that I would do. Just be like, oh, there's a family reunion. I see food. Like, this is, it's just such a classic hijink. <laughs> like, who's gonna, who's gonna care, really? Yeah, who's, who's gonna, gonna care? Once there's like more than 50 people or whatever, it's like, ah, sure. Yeah, like this is, this is outside. This isn't, this is a public event at this point. Like, give me a burger. He's, that's sort of the crux scene in the movie, I guess. That's kind of halfway in. That's sort of when she warms up to him, right? I mean, because they're still fighting up until that point. Sort of, right, yes. But then there's so much drama with Regina King and she throws up and all like that. Then we sort of get sidetracked to that. But yes, yes, that is, that's when they start to to talk to each other. And that's when Maya Angelou shows up and becomes the moral center of the movie. (laughs) She does have crazy screen presence, Maya Angelou. Yes, it's unbelievable. You do kind of just want to listen to her talk. She, yeah, she, she's great in this movie. And I just want to, she's just, I wish that she was like the Greek chorus of this movie. Cause she's just sitting there just like, look at the kids, the kids these days. Like she says that she's married, but she's not wearing her wedding ring. It's just like, I just love this. I feel like a comedy that would be like, they're, they're on the mail truck. And then she's just like off to the side, just like, Oh, look, right. Look, Absolutely. The journey. They just keep <laughs> running into her. She plays like the, the, someone at the gas station. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just Maya Angelou's just always there. But 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 I do think, like, you're right, Jordan. The, the moment she shows up in this movie, I want her to just be doing pretend it's a city for this entire film. Like, I want them to cut back to her at a table with John Singleton riffing on shit. Yeah, and I did. I don't know if you read. I don't. I haven't, like, read a full article on this, but apparently, like, Maya Angelou, like, mentored Tupac a little bit on set. Like, and I'd love to know more about that. And Tupac, like, he, like, leaves the set to go, like, uh, take part in the L.A. protests. Yeah, you know, that's all happening. Like, it does feel, I mean, to think that, like, you know, Tupac dies, what, 95, 96? Like, it's, it's, his whole thing, his whole, like, sort of fame is compacted into, like, five, six years. And there's so much shit in it that's complicated. And it does feel like. Maya Angelou is probably one of the people who's like, hey, hey, like zoom out, like think about that, you know, like and yeah, obviously. Yeah. 
No, they were very, I mean, she's like, I've, I've heard her talk about him a lot in interviews and stuff. I, I think they were fairly close and she felt like this guy is in the eye of a hurricane. He needs people right. to be able to guide him in some sort of way. It was just so fast for him. It's also, I mean, you're leaving out the other part of it, which is that like he left behind so much fucking work that he was able to still feel present as an artist for a decade after he passed. He is one of the first celebrities I was aware of dying. I don't remember Kurt Cobain dying, but I do remember Tupac dying. I was like maybe a little too young for when Kurt Cobain died, but Tupac, I was like 10 years old and it was like a big deal at school. And like, I had like a friend who was really upset. Like I'm that he is one of the earliest celebrities where I was like, yeah. See, that's like the age difference between you and I, because I remember Biggie dying vividly. But my my memory of Tupac is being like, oh, that new Tupac song is good. And people being like, you know, he died two years ago. And yeah, and y'all are both old. <laughs> y'all are both older than me because like my first one was Aaliyah. That was 2001. Mm, I mean, I remember that, too. That was crazy. Yeah, that was humongous. Yeah, Yeah, that was like a big like I could not stop crying (laughs) during that. It was so bizarre because she was I mean, also, she was like 22 years old. Like, yeah, I know she was she was so young. She was so big. It felt so clear that she was on the precipice of becoming even bigger. And then it was just like she died in a plane crash. What? Yeah, and it was for the like it was from the Rock the Boat video, which like after that, right. like I could not watch that video for like a year. I still don't like watching it. <laughs> right. I, right. And then you're like, she already has a vampire movie in the can. I remember trying to explain this to my mom because my mom was like, I don't get it. She's in like two movies. She has like two albums. Like, what wait, wait, I don't get and I was just like, you don't understand, like, like you're saying, Griffith, she was about to kind of take over the world. Like it yeah. was so clear. She was about to do the Matrix sequels. Like, that was the other thing. Everyone was just like, we we all agree that Aaliyah is about to dominate both mediums. And also just like, just because she didn't have like a lot of out, she was also like everywhere. She was friends with everyone. So you'd be watching a Missy video and she'd be there. You'd be like Ludacris, she'd be there. DMX, she'd be there. Like, she knew everyone. She was friends with everyone. And she was very present even when she wasn't like. And, and yeah. she had like married R. Kelly when she was a teenager. Like there was just so much shit there in such a short life, you know? She was in, and she was engaged to like uh, Damon Dash, I believe, when she died. Yeah, that was the whole thing. Also, like they had a whole rivalry, like Jay-Z wanted to be with her. And all, and like it was like Jay-Z and Damon Dash like fell out because it was like, who who gets to be with her? That was like a whole fucking that whole thing. was all, that, all those <laughs> fucking things are so weird. We're, we're doing this with Britney, too. And it's not like Britney was not like people were absolutely aware of how horrifying the but Britney let's, thing let's was say at the, time. at the at the time we're recording this episode, the Britney documentary has just come out. But like, it is like what you just said, Jordan, and I remember that, like where it's like, oh, these guys were fighting over it. And it's like, man, this shit is so, it's so weird. I know at the time people said it was weird, but still. No, it's, it's fucking weird. And she was just like so young. And I was just like, I, like, I was like a kid, but I was just like, can we just like leave her alone? Like, <laughs> right. like when, when two famous people I like are dating and I hear that, I go, oh, that's nice. And when uh, someone I like is dating someone I don't like, I go, oh, that's kind of a bummer. I don't understand the impulse to chart every single step of it. And even just like in this last week, I've seen all all the fucking like inches devoted to the Aaron Rodgers, Shailene Woodley thing. And are they engaged or not? Because he said this offhand. I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, I don't know who he is. 
and I like her okay as an actor. And I don't care whether they get married or not. If they do, I hope they're happy. Whatever. The only thing I'll say about that is it's one of those things where you never know when Shailene Woodley is going to pop up. She'll just kind of pop up. That's what it's like, where it's like, you'll never guess who Aaron Rodgers' guest is engaged to. And I'm like, oh, who? And Shailene Woodley. And I'm like, I wouldn't have guessed that. She's back. She's always here. I still refer to her as Divergent. I'm so oh, She's so Divergent. It's, no, that's a good, it's a good nickname. I mean, I will I will cop to the fact that I am very into the celebrity dating thing, but I'm also like I prefer like established relationships. I don't want to know who's fighting over who like this is this shit is this shit is weird. <laughs> That's a great distinction, Jordan. That's the thing. Like when it like you have the fucking like, oh, oh, they're mad because he was seen flirting with her, but he had dibs on her for like who gives a shit. But if I hear like, oh, Tessa Thompson, Janelle Monae are still together. I'm like, great. I hope they're happy. Yeah, that's nice. That makes me feel good. I don't need to know about what's going on on a day to day basis. I hope they are relaxed and watch TV together on the couch. She was wearing her ring and oh, no, the ring was off. And what what does that mean? Who cares? Oh, my God. And the Brad Pitt, Aaliyah Shawkat stuff was so fucking weird. Yeah. Let them be friends like that. Like. It also just like this. Shouldn't we all be celebrating the fact? I can't get worked up about any of it. I can't. It's because I just then I'm going to get worked up. I can't. I can't get worked up. Well, I'm worked up because I watched the Britney thing literally last night. So now I've spent the last 24 hours on this. Like tear, tear down the whole system. I keep I do keep on wondering what this movie would be like if Jada Pinkett was in it, because Tupac and Jada Pinkett were very famously like really, really close. And I also remember because my mom was talking about um, when Jada Pinkett ended up with Will Smith and my mom thought that was really funny because like in the 90s, like with her and like Tupac, she my mom vividly remembered Jada Pinkett and Tupac making fun of Will Smith together. (laughs) Yeah, he's corny because he was corny. And then for her to end up with him was just really Jada would weird. probably Jada Pinkett Smith probably would have been amazing in this movie because she rules and she just has that like she she you know she could play that sort of early iciness of the character so well and then on you know unlock she, I mean especially in the you know and I mean I I always love Jada I mean she's in the Matrix Four I'm just so pumped about that. It's it's one of the few things I think about every day that she's in the Matrix Four that Naomi is back. David, I'm not going to say anything more, but just because of conversations that you and I have off microphone on a daily basis, I just think it's incredibly funny that you're saying that Jada Pinkett being in the Matrix Four is one of the only there's other things, things I think, think about. about. I know, I know, you didn't say it was the one, but now I'm just compiling the list in my head, and that that getting like top five ranking is very funny. Um, no, Jada Pinkett would have been great in this, but I also think I, I obviously, as I just said, the Britney stuff's fresh in my mind. I'm sure there's 18 new developments uh, every week to the Britney saga since the time we've recorded this. Yeah. Has- hashtag free Britney. I mean, hashtag free Britney. This is very much a free Britney podcast. But as I was digging into this movie, uh, Janet Jackson got two fucking Razzie nominations for this movie. Which the Razzies suck. We talk about how they suck and they're stupid. The Razzies 
hate women so much. Like I remember, I remember the first time I realized that the Razzies hate women very vividly. It was Paris Hilton getting a Razzie nomination for Repo the Genetic Opera, a movie that she is amazing in. Yeah, right. She's so good in that. And I was just like, okay, they didn't watch this movie. They just don't like Paris Hilton. Cause like out of all the performances, hers is the most interesting. <laughs> they they just pick the like tabloid targets du jour. They're such hacks. It's so bad. This must have just been a like, don't, you know, it's that thing of like, oh, you think you can sing and act? Well, we're here to like, you know, poke your balloon. Yeah. But that's why I was thinking about this. I mean, obviously she's had a very different arc from Britney Spears, but you have like the, you know, deep into her career, the Super Bowl moment, which just kind of like demolishes her and somehow makes Justin Timberlake more famous, right? Justin Timberlake, a literal demon. Like, I do not believe that that is a human man. Absolutely not. I mean, the amount of women, the amount of high profile women that he has essentially like destroyed the careers of passively. We look, listen to our Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids episode for this is I'm surprised that it's actually taken this long to get to Justin Timberlake, because like I am number one Justin Timberlake hater, that ramen noodle head ass. I hate him. (laughs) I fucking hate him. I mean, this was. Our fucking Justin Timberlake episode, the Tennessee Kids, was mostly me talking about just like, I just cannot get over how much I fundamentally dislike this guy. Right. It's us being like, this is a very accomplished film and obviously a lot of efforts we put on, but there's just something about Justin Timberlake that we can't handle. And like, then we go through, I mean, yes, yes. All all the stuff, Griffin. He is just the most insincere actor. And I like, and at the time that this will come out, it'll be after this, but at this time, right now, as we're recording, he's got like a new movie, Palmer. like by Apple, and I haven't seen Palmer. I absolutely, I'm just, I'm so mad. Like he's one of the least convincing actors of all time. He's least, he's also one of the least convincing people of all time. Like if he turned out to be an alien, I would 100% be like, this makes total sense. I saw a headline today. I did not click the link, but said. Justin Timberlake thinks Palmer might be his best performance yet. Okay, cool. He's never had a good performance. Yeah, also good for you, Justin. Am I supposed to be astonished by your opinion that your most recent work is the one you think is the best? It's it's such a weird thing because like out of all of the 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 soulful white guys, like him being the white guy to go the distance when he's like not even like anyway, I mean, the real answer to white guy with soul is always John B. John B. <laughs> sure i i i do i mean a, a watching the britney documentary last night it is just kind of astonishing how fucking corny justin timberlake was like more so than almost any other boy band member you're just like this guy it, well because like he, his career would not have like been a thing if it wasn't for timbaland timbaland made him cool and also all the britney shit like he just weaponized that so much being able to brag about it and also being able to like play the victim and all of that i bring this all up just because i do think there was a similar kind of like knives out thing for janet jackson where it was just like do not ask us to respect you you know like to have her playing like a a an emotionally grounded human being in this movie. It just felt like certain people were like, fuck you. Absolutely not. You're a superstar. You're a tabloid fixture. You know, you're a pinup model. You know, you could be many things, but we're not going to intellectually engage with you. 
And the shittiest tier of people like the Razzies were just like, fuck you, absolutely not. You're not only worst actress, you're also worst new star. Um, uh, rude. I will say, and you know, post this is when she, she does scream uh, with Michael Jackson, which mm-hmm. is the most expensive music video of all time. Right, but it's also their sort of fuck the media song. And then she does the Velvet Rope, which like is kind of her best album. Like in 97, I don't know if I can say it's her best album just because that's like a whole debate, but it's a great it's, album. It's an it's incredible a great album. album. The Velvet Rope is really, yeah. And Q-Tip is on that album, by the way. He is. And it, it feels like her being like, look. Oh, that's the Joni, Joni Mitchell. Mitchell. Yes, yes, the Joni Mitchell. Yeah. And yeah, like, yeah, it yeah. feels like she's been like, I've been, you know, I've been kind of out of the spotlight for a couple of years. I'm back with like this very artistically whole thing that is different and is you know it's so fucking good this is just the the, i think this is just her best run like this like early 90s all the way up to the velvet rope like it's just it's just everything she's doing is cool i think janet jackson is great that's my opinion on janet jackson yeah no she's she's great um yeah we you know, I, well, finally, people are starting to be like, wow, Jan- um, Justin Timberlake really like leveraged that moment to like, like prolong his career. And it's just, yeah, it's it's it, it's fucked up. <laughs> she just like she for one, she's been dealing with this bullshit since she was a child. And she, I feel like, just was like, I, I don't want to talk to anyone. I, I'm getting you know, I'm going in to, so, you know, don't talk to me. Whereas Justin just rolled out this whole like slick sort of s- s- evil yeah pr campaign he's like reading these scripted and you know it sucks watch that movie that movie's interesting but it's also just yeah it's just insane that with her it was all these people up in arms yelling like think of the children and with him it was like well look he's making good jokes about it yeah, it's like she can't make a joke about it because it's her boot. Like, I don't know, man. It so was weird. like, it was, a, it was, it's America is so weird. Like, it was a good boob. It was a nice boob. Like, if anything, you know, I was just like, well, thank you. Like, that was nice. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for the gift of that boob. <laughs> I'm never going to say no to boobs. I don't understand what everybody's it, problem It's is, a whole, but. we really, Amer- it was the a lowest point for America saying yes to boobs, and it's a problem. It's a, it just, Reflects how bad America really was at that moment. I think a lot about the the SNL sketch the week after that was uh, uh, Daryl Hammond doing Ted Koppel and uh, he pronounced it bube. And I think that is truly the only funny thing that came out of that entire scandal. Um, can I just run through quickly? I know we talked about most of the movie. And we we did some some Janet talk here. I just want to very quickly run down some of the things that Janet did not do as an actor after this. Okay, Um, they uh, wanted her. They wanted to build a Star is Born remake around her. Didn't happen. She really wanted to play Dorothy Dandridge in a biopic. Didn't happen. Eventually, that becomes the HBO Halle Berry movie that really elevates Halle Berry. Uh, She accepts the role of uh, Marcy Tidwell and Jerry Maguire drops out. Regina King gets it. She was offered Trinity in the Matrix, turns it down for touring. Uh, She was officially cast to play Storm in X-Men, dropped out because of touring. I mean, a lot of these, we're seeing like the tale of uh, the the roles that made the careers of other actresses. Yeah. uh, Where she just kept on saying like, nah, I kind of am more interested in in the music. Uh, Scream 3, Head of States. This is an insane stat. 
she was originally requested to provide the singing vocals for Catherine Zeta-Jones in Chicago. They wanted to dub Catherine Zeta-Jones with Janet Jackson. This is weird. Just cast Janet wow. Jackson. Catherine Zeta-Jones won an Oscar for doing her own singing in that movie. Clearly, it was good enough. Announced in 2004 that Betty Thomas was going to remake Valley of the Dolls starring Janet Jackson. Betty Thomas. Yeah. Of all people. Absolutely not. <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, Eddie Murphy wanted to do a Romeo and Juliet adaptation where she played Juliet and he played Romeo's father. Don't really understand the timeline on that one. She was originally supposed to play the White Witch and the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. She'd be good. Oh, my God. That yeah. would have been good. That would have been good. I would have been into that. Uh, and then Tyler Perry tried to get her from Medea's family reunion before I think Why Did I uh, Get Married was really built around winning her over. Yeah. And then, you know, at that point, uh, she signs this deal with Lionsgate and never makes a single movie. Uh, I, I wish Shantax had more of a movie career. She, it just seems like she's someone who d- does what she wants to do. And often that's going to more point to music, right? Like, you know, like she's got a lot of plates spinning. Her music career is kind of always there. And often she just goes back to it. And this was, yeah, 2011. It was J-Day, J Day, J, excuse me, J D J Entertainment. I want to say J Day J. It's J D J Entertainment. And her quote was, I want to make movies with a lot of energy. I love action films. I love sci fi. Uh, no movies come out of that deal. Give her action sci-fi, which that just reminds me of like Halle Berry, like really, really campaigning to be in the third John Wick movie. And then me just being like, oh, my God, she could have been doing shit like this the whole time. She is so good in John Wick 3. So crazy good in that movie. Uh, Yeah. And especially like Lionsgate, like home of John Wick is the exact place I want to see Janet Jackson making sci-fi action movies. That's the exact kind of unpretentious, fun genre stuff. I want her to be doing. I would love to watch Janet Jackson just like play a spy. Like that would be so good. Box office game. This movie was a big hit, right? It was a medium hit. It opens number one. Uh, it's July 23rd, 1993. It makes like $30 million. I wouldn't, but probably for the size of movie that it is, it, no one's taken a bath. But it does open number one. So it definitely, you know, makes a splash. It's got its big star. Big soundtrack. She gets the Oscar nomination for the song. And also it's just being positioned in the summer. Like there's a lot of confidence from Columbia. Uh, number two is a great movie, uh, an action movie with a great star. One of the, one of the, this, this star usually directs himself, but one of the, he's not directing himself here. In the line of fire. Yes. Yeah. I fucking love in the line of fire. I know a movie you love. That was the giveaway for me. There is how passionately you were talking about it. Just a lot of fun. Just a great hokey old guy. It's just the setup. He's haunted by like JFK getting shot. He's still a Secret Service agent. Well, the the setup is even simpler than that. That movie is money in the bank the second you say Clint Eastwood plays a Secret Service agent. You're like, yeah, absolutely. Take me there. Um, Number three is another movie I love. This is just a great time. What a great time. For schlocky thrillers, this is. Um, you could just go see Poetic Justice or maybe go see a thriller first and then see Poetic Justice second to kind, of, to kind of like, you know, unwind a little bit. But sure. this is major star, uh, best-selling novel. Um, hmm. 
Yeah, I just it's a thriller. I, yeah, I so badly want to say, "What if there was a?" But you know, it. You know what it is. It's oh, kind okay, of that's a, a hint. It's kind of a. There's something up with title with the. It's you know. it's is it the good son? No, it's not the good son. It like ma- major star, major major, like huge huge star, huge major, the biggest major. author the of the '90s. It's the firm. Well mm-hmm. done, Griffin. Thank you. In its fourth week, it's made 112 million dollars. Something's up with that firm, Griffin. Yeah. What the if there was like a firm? Two and a half hours long, and when it's over, you're like, "That's it. There's not more. What's up with the firm?" <laughs> the firm is so long. It's but yeah. so long. <laughs> it has a scene where a kid backflips down a Memphis street, and everyone acts like it's normal. <laughs> and then, like Tom Cruise, is like is like, "Oh, I could backflip too." It's the it's the most bananas movie. It's the most stacked cast, but I I just love where it's like, what's the pitch? What's up with it? So this this lawyer joins a law firm. Oh, okay. Well, what happens? Well, there's something up with the firm. Firm. This is not a good firm. They're they're up to no good. It's a radical sci-fi premise. What if these weird ivory tower financial institutions are actually completely morally fucked? Gene Hackman is in a role written for Meryl Streep. It, it, come on, it's the best. All right, number Isn't four. Isn't he also uncredited because he was angry that he wasn't above the title? Something like that. He's maybe only credited in the end or whatever. But yeah, something like that. Uh, number four is a film I saw in theaters. Children's film. Um, big hit. You, you probably it, saw this in theaters. You might have been too young. A Disney movie? I almost definitely saw it. It's not a Disney movie. It is a live action movie. It's live action. Um, with an animal. Which was just... A cornerstone of children's entertainment at the time. It's not Beethoven, right? No. Bigger. Uh, big, bigger. This animal's bigger. big. Is it Free Willy? It's Free Willy. I mean, how many animals are bigger than Beethoven? Absolutely saw in theaters. Uh, so you kind of, you have Michael and Janet at the box office. That's true. Of course. Will you be there? Do you remember when the whale jumps? He sure does. In Free Willy? No, I don't remember that happening. It happens at the end of the movie. No, it's the, it's no the last thing no that way. happens in the movie. No, no. I would remember that. I would remember that. It's this big moment that comes right at the end. Okay, okay. But what? You're talking about like a little jump? Certainly he didn't clear like the entire height of a kid or something. He can't right? clear like a Jason James Richter type, right? Yeah, no, like, what? I mean, I'm talking two, three feet. No way he cleared like five foot two. He's like a stuntman in this. Yeah, he is. He sure is. Keiko, of course. They made like four of those in an animated series and everything. I think there's three theatricals and direct-to-video. I, you're, you're probably right. We could probably and do a cartoon. that on the there were, Yeah. The fourth one is called uh, Free, Free Willy Escape from Pirate's Cove. Just FYI. That's what the fourth one's called. I think the cartoon was like Captain Planet, where there were like robot pirates who were trying to pour toxic waste into the ocean. Free Willy has like lasers on his back and shit. Yep, there's a cyborg. I also want to point out that the straight-to-video sequel, Free Willy Escape from Pirates Coast, stars uh, Bindi Irwin, the daughter of right, um, of course. Uh, Steve Irwin, the, the crocodile hunter. Um, number five of the box office, Griffin, is the most successful film of 1993. The most successful film of 1993. Well, 92 is Aladdin. 91 is Terminator 2. Go in the wrong direction. I know, but I'm just trying to uh, familiarize myself with the other the other films of the time. Of course, 94 is Gump. 95 is Toy Story. Why is 93 the one that I can't remember? I don't know. This movie's big, bigger than any of those movies. 
It's bigger than any of those movies. So mm-hmm. it's it, it was one of the 10 highest grossing films of all time when it came out. I think it was number one, practically. It was practically. Oh, of course. I am a dumb, dumb. The movie is called Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. Jurassic it's a big Park. hit. But number six. And Ben, I want to know if you like this movie. Opening at number six. Coneheads. Ben. Oh, were you on. a Conehead fan? Why waste airtime asking I this question? I just want to hear him say it. Yeah, just let him say it. He's not saying anything. Is Ben frozen? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Is Ben this frozen? Is terrible. For the first time in the history of this podcast, Coneheads has come up organically and Ben is frozen. <laughs> this is tragic. I thought he was just doing a David-esque pause. I thought he was... It is crazy how satisfied he looks on the Zoom. He looked so satisfied. Oh my well, God, it's uh, midnight. Please, no one tell Ben that it says David Sims is the host now. David has gone full Barkat Abdi. He is the host now. Uh, please, I beg our listeners, do not tell Ben that Coneheads came up without him. It will break his little heart. This has to be our secret. Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show. You're one of our favorite people to have on as a guest. Thank you so much for having me. Um, people should listen to uh, Bad Romance. Yeah. Yes, please listen to Bad Romance and give us good reviews. We just recently had Griffin on to talk about The Breakup. The Breakup, one of my favorite uh, uh, guilty, I I hesitate to even call it a guilty pleasure, but a movie I've spent a lot of my life defending and we're somewhat unlikely to ever do Peyton Reed on this show. So I was very, very grateful to have an opportunity. I'd like to do Peyton Reed one day. Maybe someday. But yes, I did a very impassioned defense of, of The Breakup, a movie that few people have ever thought about more than once. Uh, and that I've probably seen eight times. Folks, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks to Joe Bone and Pat Rounds for our artwork. Thank you to Lane Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. Thank you to our editing team, Alex Barron and AJ McKeon. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit and go to our Shopify page for some real nerdy shirts and other types of merchandise that don't fit into that paradigm of speech that easily. Yes. You can go to patreon.com slash blank check where we're talking about whatever franchise won March Madness, or maybe if that one was short, we're talking about some other thing. Maybe we're talking about Free Willy. I don't know. Hey, Ben, uh, welcome back. How are you doing? Fine. I wanted to hear what this movie was. So annoyed. Oh, don't worry. I don't think it's a movie you cared about that much. We won't even (laughs) talk about it. Wait, I can't tell him? I don't think it was like a pivotal totemic movie for you. I Save think it should... for and after. We'll see. Yes, good call. Good call. Tune in next week for higher learning. And as always, Coneheads. Fuck you, Gil. What? Of course, <laughs> man. The goddamn fucking masterpiece. <laughs>